Okay, I think we're live. Um, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the July 1st, 2023 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. As always, we're joined by members of the Free School coming to us live from Philadelphia and Chicago, I believe, um, and have a lot to talk about today, as always. Um, the kind of main item that we're going to start the discussion with is as many people know, the Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative action regarding the cases uh, related to Harvard, as well as University of North Carolina. Um, and we're gonna talk about this, not just in terms of the affirmative action case uh, in isolation, but in relation to the, the crisis of the left, which we've been discussing for several weeks and um, how this also builds towards the 2024 election. Um, and so, yeah, excited to get into the discussion today, but I'll pass it over to um, Dr. Anthony Montero then, yeah, to start us off. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Good morning to everybody. Um, I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and uh, if we're not careful, we can be talking about Supreme Court decisions uh, for the next six months. Uh, part of that is because of the role of the US Supreme Court in American politics, which is probably unique in modern societies. Uh, and that um, goes back uh, to the beginnings of this country, the American Revolution, uh, where there was not just the uh, freeing of the nation and the establishment of a independent state and nation, but in doing so, a constitution was written and um, uh, written in 1887 and was finally passed uh, by the population voting, or those who could vote, uh, in 1889. Uh, what is significant, and I think this helps us to understand um, the function and role of law in American politics. What was significant? The American Constitution was the first uh, constitution of a modern nation. The British or English Revolution did not produce a constitution. Um, the French Revolution, which comes um, about 13 years after the start of the American Revolution, does produce a constitution. However, the constitution does not uh, assume the significance in the political life of France as the American Constitution does in the political life of the United States. Um, the word constitution should be taken seriously. Uh, it is from the word to constitute. Uh, in other words, the American Constitution constituted, it was the legal constitution of the state. And it was 
the um, the parameters and the conditions upon which the ruling elite would govern, which is to say it was not the will of an individual or a small group. Uh, it was not capricious, but it was law-based. And it was around the law that a broad consensus of the people could be established. It seems common sense today, but if you go back over 200, 300 years ago, it was an act of revolutionary defiance. Uh, it was not a royal family, it was not a king, it was not uh, uh, an, an individual strong man. It was a nation which was governed, and, and you'll hear this all the time, governed by laws. That is not to be trivialized or taken as insignificant in spite of the fact that for most of the history of the country, uh, I would say up to the civil rights movement, the nation in one or another way lived in violation of the constitution. Let me explain a little bit more. Um, The American Constitution is, in other contexts, referred to as the fundamental law. If you go, for example, uh, uh, maybe to the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, I think they refer to their constitution as the fundamental law. Uh, and that's what a constitution is. It is the law upon which all other laws are based. So if a law, for example, in a state uh, is challenged on the basis of the Constitution of the United States uh, and the Supreme Court rules in favor of one side or the other, they're literally saying that that particular law is either uh, in accordance with the fundamental law of the Constitution, or it is not. Now, while in France, for example, uh, you will have the First Republic, the Second, the Third, the Fourth Republic, I think they're up to the Fifth one now. And in each republic, they can rewrite the Constitution. That is not the practice in the United States. In the United States, the practice is to amend the Constitution, to add to the Constitution and make it part of the fundamental law of the country. For example, after the original Constitution, first 10 amendments to the Constitution are viewed as a concession of the to the democratic masses. For example, we hear all this talk, the First Amendment, 
freedom of speech. Obviously, the democratic, the radical democratic forces saying to the elites that either we have freedom of speech, which is also freedom of organization, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, you know, all of those possibilities. Either we have that or we will wage a revolution against you like the one that was waged against the British. And there are 10 of these uh, First Amendments. Uh, the second we're familiar with is the right to bear arms and we could go on and on and on. There were other amendments to the Constitution, but the Constitution has never been formally rewritten. There have been times where revolutionaries have called for a new constitution of the United States. Uh, famously, and I think the last real attempt at this was the Black Panther Party's Revolutionary Constitutional Convention held here in Philadelphia in 1970, where Huey P. Newton proclaimed the need for a new constitution of the United States. Uh, for all kinds of reason, reasons, it was never uh, carried through. However, great political events have led to changes or amendments to the American Constitution. Most significantly, the Second American Revolution, what is called the Civil War. More Americans died in the Civil War than any war before or since that the United States has been involved in. Some people estimate up to 700,000. Uh, nothing is more bitter, nothing is more long-term in terms of the wounds that go unhealed than a Civil War. People and nations recover more easily from foreign invasion than they do from a Civil War. It's like a family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They sometimes never get back together. Yeah. Uh, the bitterness is so deep. The sense of betrayal is so deep. But um, the second American revolution, which continues to resonate up till today, produced the most important amendments to the American Constitution. The 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. In other words, slavery is unconstitutional. It violates the fundamental law of the country. This is huge because the first writing of the Constitution did not oppose slavery. In fact, it gave certain uh, special rights to slave owners, uh, specifically the right to vote for their slaves. But this is the important one. And almost every constitutional question since the 14th Amendment in 1868, almost every, not all, but overarchingly, 
constitutional questions engage the 14th Amendment, and in particular, the Equality Clause and the Due Process Clause. What the 14th Amendment established is the foundations of modern American citizenship. Now, it is more than significant. And I think it makes the case that the free school is making. Frankly, as I thought about this over the last couple of days, it makes the point that Eddie made in his presentation to the uh, festival. The case that Du Bois would make in Souls of Black Folk, the problem of the 20th century, it's the problem of the color line. That the most important questions of democracy emanate from the struggle to extend and, and have embraced by, democ by democratic principles the African-American people. The 14th Amendment comes out of the struggle against slavery. Most of the history of the 14th Amendment has in one or another way involved black rights. The third American Revolution, and it is, and, and this makes the case that it was a third American Revolution, sought to uphold and extend the meaning of the 14th Amendment, what it means to be a citizen in the United States and how the state as the state, the overarching state, or the particular governments of various states cannot ever violate the citizenship rights of people who were formerly enslaved. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. That doesn't mean it doesn't continue to happen, especially as it relates to the prison industrial complex, the death penalty, uh, and matters such as that. There are still huge constitutional questions that have to be argued out relative to the rights of Black people to be safe, to, to be protected against police brutality, unjust imprisonment, long terms of imprisonment that do not apply to anybody but black people, uh, and so on. So the 14th Amendment, which established citizenship for black people, opened the door to citizenship for all people, including the 19th Amendment, 
which extended the right to vote, established as a constitutional right, the right to vote for women. Again, but it flows, they flow out of the 14th Amendment and the struggle for black freedom. That was then, it continues to be the case today. Now, I'll just let me make a comparative. Um, I talked about France and how with each republic, they can change and have changed their constitution. Um, the Soviet Union, uh, in writing its constitution in the 1920s, pretty much stayed with it as their fundamental law until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, however, when you take a place like China, I don't think law occupies the same place in their society as it does in ours. One, because I think that consensus building among the people in China occurs through political and ideological processes, which assumes that the state is an agency of the people and that the people need not be protected from the state or from strategic actors in the society. It's a different assumption here. The assumption in the West and in the US Revolution is that the citizen had to be protected from the state. That's based upon the history of feudal autocracies, aristocracies, kings, and, and that type of thing, where all power flowed from the monarch and not from below. The assumption of the Chinese state is that the people need not fear the state. The state is an agency of the people. And that's why I've often used the term that, frankly, I got from earlier um, discussions during the time of the Soviet Union and other uh, socialist countries, the state of the whole people. Uh, and the state of the whole people is not a state of one class or the other. Uh, in the United States, we have a bourgeois regime of law. Uh, we are not looking because the state does not assume to be an agency of the people. In fact, it is almost an admission that we need a regime of law to protect the individual from potential and actual excesses of the state. But then you take smaller countries where the possibilities of democracy are greater, direct democracy. China, 1.4 billion people. India, 1.5 billion people. You cannot have so much a direct democracy as much as a representative 
democracy. The law is plays a bigger role in China than, let us say, in North Korea, a country of 26, 25 million people where institutions of civil society can play a larger role in the democratic functioning, not just of the state, but of society. The same could be argued with respect to Cuba, 13, 14 million people. The rule of the people is far, uh, can be far better uh, realized in a direct democratic sense than in a representative democratic sense. So in North Korea and Cuba, you get two things going on at the same time. The representative uh, institutions like the parliament and so on, and both countries have that. Uh, but then you have direct democracy. And in the day-to-day -day life world of politics, so let's say in North Korea or in Cuba, the people have the opportunity not only to be involved, but to express their opinions. Fidel Castro is our leader. We affirm this in our day-to-day -day act, political activity. It doesn't mean that everybody agrees with Fidel Castro. Kim Jong-un is our leader because uh, we affirm it regularly, not only in the political institutions, but in the institutions of civil society. Marion Nguabe of the People's Republic of, of the Congo, when he talks about the crucial triad of the state, the People's Organization, and the Vanguard Party, what he was referencing is an emerging democracy based upon a building and constantly emerging consensus uh, of the people. Uh, this kind of democracy, People's Republic of Congo, North Korea, Cuba, is more grassroots. Uh, in fact, I would think that in countries like that, you would find less political alienation than you might find, let us say, in a huge country like China or, um, um, uh, or India, or the United States for that matter. Uh, representative democracies uh, you know, have this, when they hit a crisis, it's this great problem of, um, of involvement. People don't have a way to express themselves uh, through civil society because there is no civil society as such. Now, having said that, law and politics play a particular and unique role in the United States. Let me put that another way. Law, politics, and race. Mm -hmm. Law, politics, and race. So if you look at the trajectory of American history, of American constitutional and legal history, of American political history, you can almost always uh, see 
this interconnectedness of these three uh, variables. Now, this brings us to the rulings, most current rulings, the Dobb decision and, quote, overturning um, abortion as a federal protection. This is very important or the overturning, which is very different in quality, the overturning of affirmative action programs. And this is what I want to get to as relates to elite universities. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not one of these people. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The Supreme Court overturned affirmative action. No, it overturned affirmative action programs in about a hundred elite universities. Out of some four thousand universities, this applies particularly and uniquely to a hundred elite universities, by which I mean the Ivy Leagues, like what well, they always talk about, Harvard, the so-called elite of the elite, but that's not the only one, of course, Yale, Princeton, um, uh, uh, Stanford, University of California, Berkeley, you know, elite universities. And the question, uh, uh, let me, I just want to say, now, but these elite universities can find other remedies to have a diverse student body. Now, the question is, when did affirmative action first arise? Right. It didn't arise in the 1950s, 1940s, uh, not even the 1960s. Affirmative action programs, I want to underline programs, arose in the 1970s. Obviously, the impetus was to give teeth or substance to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The other thing, and this is the ruling class now, looking at its future and its capacity to govern and rule. The need to diversify racially, in particular, the ruling elite of the country. This is why the elite universities are so important. Example, eight of the nine members of the US Supreme Court got their law degrees from Harvard University. Most of your elites these days have done professional education, business school, law school, medical school, at an Ivy League or another elite universities. Now, does that make them smarter? Does that mean 
they are more qualified to rule or govern the country? Right. Not at all. Why do I want to go to Harvard? I'm not saying me in particular. But why would a person want to go to Harvard Law School? Well, because Harvard Law School, like Harvard Undergraduate School, and maybe Cornell, I don't know, is a finishing school in reality. What do I learn there? Well, I learned some important things, you know, I think. But more than anything, I rub shoulders with professors and other students who are connected to networks of elites. So if I go to Harvard Law School, I could be dumb as a doornail. But, but a Harvard Law degree means that major law firms, major government institutions are looking for people like me. I'm talking about a black person like me. Black person like me that graduates from Harvard Law School one, I'll tend to talk uh, more like a white person. I can think like white elites think. I I have manners, I'm polite, I you know I I have been reformed and reshaped as a elite. So these universities do not produce more intelligent people or more capable people or even more creative people. I'm thinking really less creative people. But they produce elites, white, black, and Asian and Hispanic. So what was this fight over? Now, <laughs> I think all the time about my dear friend, Alice. <laughs> First of all, the case was argued with different optics. The last great affirmative action case was in 1978, which was called the Bakke decision. And it had to do with the University of California, I think at Berkeley's medical school. And in that case, 1978, only a few years after these programs had become instituted, it was decided, the Supreme Court decided, that race could be a factor considered, but not the only factor. Uh, and so, you know, elite universities who uh, design their curricula, their student body to meet the needs of the ruling elite. If in a transforming and changing world where Africa and Asia is no, are no longer colonized, well, if the United States is going to lead the world, we can't appear to be a racially discriminatory country. You have to have some blacks who think like, talk like, and represent interest of the white elite. The same thing in journalism. There were no black reporters to speak of at the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal or other major newspapers. Well, now you have black columnists, associate editors, and so on. And what do they say and how do they think? Well, they don't think that much differently from white elites. Now, here we come with the last affirmative action case, which earned affirmative action 
programs, particularly at elite universities. No group of people have been so intent upon achieving elite status as have Asians. I'm not talking about all Asians, but it is spectacular, almost unbelievable. And I'm not hating, I'm congratulating to a certain extent. Because <laughs> I want to, I mean, that focus where you get your kid from five years old and put him in every kind or her in every kind of program of both education enrichment to have a well-rounded well resume to even start taking classes on how to get the highest scores in the SAT when you're in junior high school. I mean, it's no, it's never been done before and it has paid off. You know what I'm saying? Well, in the short run. I mean, it's a lot of, I would say, psychological damage done to the children because you have to make them into white people, miniature white people. Uh, it's <laughs> Now, I know what Alice thinks all the time. That makes Chinese look bad. <laughs> I would say to Alice, no, it doesn't. It makes some Chinese look bad. It makes some Chinese look like they're opportunists, but that's in every group. It does not make Chinese look bad. Maybe it does for some people. But this drive to enter the elite, and that's why you want to be at Harvard. That's why you want to be at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, not any University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's why you want to be at Duke. That's why you want to be at Stanford. That's why you want to get the highest scores and master standardized testing. It's a learned skill. It's not something you're born with. And it's not a test of intelligence, by the way. And I, I learned this from Michelle. She told me her history of having studied that. And I said, you know, I failed the SAT. I didn't even know what it was, what I was doing there. But you socialized and and you focused. It's a, it's it's really unbelievable. Now, what the case said, in effect, is that if I have the highest grades, if I have the highest SAT scores, if I have a record of well-roundedness, why should and if I had gone to a high school where everybody else is an overachiever, why should I have to take a back seat to a black or Latino person which does not have, who does not have the same uh, standardized test scores, the same well-roundedness, the same articulation, you know, all of those skills. In doing so, if you put that person ahead of me, for whatever reason, you are violating the equality clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. 
Well, narrowly conceived, the 14th Amendment narrowly conceived can lead to that conclusion. In the same way that the 14th Amendment narrowly conceived led to the Plessy v. Ferguson decision in 1896, which upheld racial segregation. The Equality Clause of the 14th Amendment more broadly conceived led to the Brown versus the Board of Education decision of 1954, which overturned Plessy and said that segregation was illegal because it violated legal protections for African-Americans, okay? Now, what am I trying to get at? Um, this political moment is different than 1954. In 1954, the United States politically, economically, and militarily was still on the ascending line of development. And so the 14th Amendment was broadly conceived of in the 54 decision. Here, in 2023, the decision to say that affirmative action programs at Harvard and North Carolina are unconstitutional did it with certain provisos. It did not go all the way. It really didn't. And again, the decision itself was based upon not a representation of all universities, but of elite universities. The other part of it is, I think it is more symbolic than substantive because every university was prepared for this, especially the elite ones. They got all the lawyers in the world, many of the, uh, uh, people that write the decisions for the Supreme Court justices have gone to Harvard and Yale and are in the administrations of these universities or are in major law firms and they will find ways to use the exceptions. Like Robert said, we think that affirmative action programs at Harvard are um, unconstitutional except that race can be considered if a person writes an essay saying mm. that the school I went to, uh, yeah. half of the people couldn't read or write. And so that kept my capacity down. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But what he said, and it was more the establishment of a principle for him that any reference to race is a violation of the Equality Clause of the 14th Amendment. Mm. Well, that could easily be argued against, believe me, especially when one considers the intent of the 14th Amendment itself in 1868. But um, 
the sky has not fallen. The crisis of the political elite has not abated. In fact, it is worse. You will get, and that's what I hope we don't allow ourselves to be drawn into uh, an elite and political discussion, be it on MSNBC or CNN, which is a lot of crocodile tears for people who could give a damn about this because their children, if they make enough money, will go to elite uh, finishing and private schools where they're at best two black people and two black people who might be more white than black. You know what I'm saying? Um, It's not like uh, anybody's trying to get down with the hood, as they say. Uh, So it's crocodile tears, it's bad faith, it's disingenuous, and it is political. And race and law and politics are this fundamental connectivity here. I hope we don't allow ourselves to be drawn into that discussion and we understand what this is and what it isn't. Uh, Affirmative action for the most part was never designed to uplift the rank and file, the grassroots, the working class, the impoverished of black folk. Mm. These programs, especially at elite universities where they were most prolific, most developed, were to create a black elite which could help manage American society. Put it another way, American capitalism and ultimately the American empire. And you can, I mean, you know, if you know what to look for, you take a Harvard professor, um, you know, you're saying, well, hey man, I, I thought you got that gig to help us out, but you don't even talk like us anymore. <laughs> you act more like a white person, like a white elite. And he say to you, well, that's who's paying me. I got to, you know, whoever pays the piper, Plays the tune, however that goes. But so it was an elite program. It was not an anti-poverty program. It was not a job program. It was not to integrate the workforce. Mm. The closest we came to that was during the Nixon administration with the Philadelphia plan to break down the institutional segregation and racism in the building trades industry. And those programs were upheld because uh, a lot of the construction in places like Philadelphia was based upon federal money. Mm -hmm. And so you could apply the 14th Amendment to defend um, the Philadelphia plan. But for the most part, this is an elite question, which if if you don't mind, could I just go on, uh, Jerry? Or if you want me to stop, I can stop and then we can go forward. No, no, keep, keep going. Because I just wanted to flip, flip this going forward into the political crisis of the nation and the mm-hmm. political crisis of the left. 
Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of the uh, debate and talk about this uh, decision will will be bent towards uh, the presidential race of 2024. Mm-hmm. Already has been. Uh, as you know, Biden came out uh, passionately attacking the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't want his record to be brought out. His uh, support of the crime bill of uh, 1994, right, right, right. which led to almost or one third of young black men being imprisoned or under the control of the criminal justice system and increasingly young black women or uh, other things in his past. Uh, and now suddenly he's the defender of the rights of black people, or at least the rights of elite. So this is about uh, the political struggle going forward to 2024. Mm. Of course, Trump has come out in support of the decision. Um, And he's going to have to find a way Mm. to back out a lot of this. Mm. You know, if he wants to realize the potential of his presidential campaign to attract black voters who are leaving the Democratic Party. Uh, If he wants to play race in a certain way, he loses the potential of black voters. But we'll come back to that. Now, what we see from the grassroots And the grassroots, the ordinary citizen is driving the political crisis. This is not a crisis that is elite made. In other words, elites are not deciding the depth and magnitude of this crisis. It is the ordinary person. What do I mean by that? Well, First of all, all you got to do is look at polls, polling data, repeating over and over again, no matter who takes the poll. 60% of Americans uh, feel that the country, well, more than 60%, 60% feel that uh, the ruling elite are leading the country in the wrong direction. Uh, 80%, something like that, believe that the country is going in the wrong direction. Uh, And on and on and on. Uh, The 75, 76 million votes that Trump got uh, reflected a massive discontentment with the way things are being done in the country. Uh, The candidacy of Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr. is a response to a growing discontent of Democratic voters, Mm -hmm. so much so 
that the majority of working class Democrats have left the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is the party of the working class. Some will say, well, the white working class. Well, let's see. Right. You know, uh, whether blacks will join in a movement within the Republican Party or whether or not they will hold out and boycott all political parties. Uh, the weapon of boycott is always a weapon available to the black discontented. And we already see it being manifested in the mayoral primary here in Philadelphia, where it's estimated 75 to 80% of black registered voters did not vote. A similar pattern was expressed in the Chicago mayoral election. Uh, this boycotting of both political parties is still an option for black people. Clearly, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running within the Democratic Party right. will attract to him black voters and really black discontented voters who don't like Biden, who see him as being disingenuous and see all of this talk about an improving economy and the lowest unemployment in history of black people, you know, all of that kind of talk. Nobody believes him. That is not what the real world experience of black working people is. High inflation, uh, part-time employment, uh, no unions, and a precarious existence. And so most black people, as, as I read them, don't want to hear what Biden has said. And they are saying, in effect, we've heard it all before. And then on top of it, you're too old, you're too decrepit, and your Alzheimer's is making it difficult for you even to do anything about these problems. Okay. Now, so they will move towards Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who from the standpoint of the elite is unpredictable and a loose cannon. He has already said that he wants to remake the Democratic Party into what it was when his uncle and father were either the president or running for the presidency. That is the party of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and not the party of Bill Clinton and neoliberalism. Now, Robert F. Kennedy has already said, when asked at a town hall, what do you think about Trump saying positive things about you? He says, I'm glad he said positive things about me. I want to build unity across the divide of uh, political belief, party, and so on and so forth. Well, that is, that is a, a quintessentially a populist way of thinking. 
where you don't think about party, you think about the people, you think about the cause, you think about the movement. If he were a party hack, he would think about reelecting Biden. Right, right, right. When he was asked, if you don't win the nomination, will you support Biden? He said, I can't answer that question right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which tells you everything you need to know. And then I understand he was supposed to speak at the Moms for Liberty event here in Philadelphia, but for some reason uh, had to have a scheduling problem. But you get the point. He is not a part of the neoliberal, neocon elite that run the Democratic Party. Also, when RFK Jr., talks about remaking the Democratic Party and bringing the working class voters back to the Democratic Party that had left it for Trump, what he is also saying, that, it, that the party is in an existential struggle for its existence, that the party has become a party of, um, of elites, which it is, the Democratic Party is no longer a working class party, no longer a party of working class voters, etc. It is the party of the richest people in this country and in the world. No party is more a collection of billionaires than the Democratic Party. It is also the party of the military industrial complex and a party of high-tech social media and the instruments of propaganda. It is, in all essentials, the party of the ruling class. Now, I know you get people and, you know, want to get to Chris, well, I'll get to him now. Chris Hedges and maybe Noam Chomsky, certainly, um, uh, Gerald Horn, who want to make the argument that Trump is just another Republican and what this struggle represents is a split in the ruling class. That's the greatest bunch of nonsense that's ever come down the pike. The ruling class is more united than ever, more united than ever. And they politically in the immediate sense in defeating Trump any way that they can, by any means necessary, be it legal and criminalizing him, uh, be it using the media and propaganda uh, mechanisms, to undermine and destroy him or whatever they have, be it running all kind of Republicans to damage him and try to take him down. The other thing that the ruling class is united about is that the US position in the world must be upheld and defended. U.S. can't do it alone, as it kind of did after the collapse of the Soviet Union 
up to around 2016, 2017. It has to do with through alliances. In Europe, NATO, the, the European Economic Union. In Asia, uh, they're still trying to throw something together to contain China. But the US, the imperative that the United States remain the global hegemon. And that means not just in Asia. Some people say, well, the difference between Putin and Biden is that uh, Putin, uh, Trump, I mean, pardon me, Trump and Biden, Trump wants to end the war in Ukraine to focus like a laser beam upon China. And the Biden people think they could take on both nuclear superpowers at the same time. Well, I disagree with that. The ruling class, and I wanna, I wanna make this clear, like we said last week, just being a billionaire does, make, does not make you a part of the ruling class. Jay-Z is a billionaire. He's not a part of the ruling class. What decides one's membership in the ruling class is what one's relationship to the state is. The ruling class is defined by the institutions and connections of those institutions to the main centers of state power. If you do not have that relationship, you are not a part of the ruling class. You might have friends that are in the ruling class. You might hang out with some people in the ruling class. You might party with the ruling class. Uh, you might get your drugs from the same place the ruling class gets its drugs from. But that doesn't mean you're part of the ruling class. It is a more strategic uh, relationship. So, we do not have a divided ruling class. We have a united ruling class, a united narrative of the ruling class. Now, from the left, the claim that the ruling class is divided is a way, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, by which I mean, by saying the ruling class is divided, that gives me the excuse for supporting the less fascist, quote unquote, part of the ruling class, which is Biden. You say, well, Biden is brought, has brought us, his administration has brought us closer to nuclear war than any administration. Oh, well, but uh, Trump is gonna try to bring us fascism. So then you say, well, but hold on. I thought that the classic definition of fascism includes the most war-like, militarist elements of the ruling class. Oh yeah, but, but now we have to include in fascism, not just war, but climate destruction. You say, well, isn't war the greatest threat to the climate 
an all-nuclear war? Yeah, but you can't look at it that way. And and then they go and say, but then you got all of these intersectional issues. Okay, so now I'm going to go identity politics on you. Trump is not down with the trans movement. And therefore, his opposition and others who oppose the trans movement or the trans ideology and thus threaten the lives of trans people who we all know are the most endangered part of the uh, American population. So Trump is not down with trans, even though he wants to withdraw from war with the major powers and has said so, he is still a fascist. So then, let me just, uh, I, let me just make my point a little clear and more simple. You reduce the significance of war and thermonuclear war in the definition of fascism. You elevate identity questions in this moment trans and LGB questions to be equivalent to almost nuclear war. And then you say, well, have you looked at the uh, national security state that every one of us is being surveyed, surveilled? What about Julian Assange? Is the march for trans rights as important as the struggle to free Julian Assange? So it is establishment of false equivalencies. The war in Ukraine and the rights of trans people or the ideology of trans genderism are the same. I might not be, a person would say, I might not be fighting for peace in Ukraine because I don't know what that's about, to which I would say you need to find out if you don't. But I'm angry because I'm a trans person and people are trying to infringe upon my rights. You have reality turned on its head. Now, the point I'm trying to get at is this. I didn't say enough about uh, Chris Hedges. Yeah. By the way, the other side of the Chris Hedges thing, in upholding Cornell West's candidacy, he smears Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Right. And John, no, Robert F. Kennedy Sr. and John F. Kennedy. holding one that they hated, Martin Luther King. They didn't like Martin Luther King, held him in contempt. Two, that uh, John Kennedy's presidency was really not about detente and peaceful coexistence and reducing nuclear arms and nuclear testing with the Soviet Union. But this was all fake, that 
there, according to Noam Chomsky and Seymour, um, Seymour Joseph, Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch, 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 I'm sorry. Seymour Hirsch, that there is counter evidence that proves that John F. Kennedy was as much a cold warrior and a militarist as any other president. And therefore, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running on a false claim when he says he wants to reinvent the Democratic Party as a party of peace, a party of the working class. And he says that's what his father was intending on doing. Uh, uh, Hedges will say, well, his father or his uncle were none of that. Well, it turns out that Seymour Hirsch and Noam Chomsky and uh, Chris Hedges are all absolutely wrong. John F. Kennedy was in office not even three years, hardly three, maybe three years. He was surveilled by the deep state, the CIA, and so on, which ultimately assassinated him. And Robert F. Kennedy has made this point that the assassination of his uncle and his father and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were effectively a coup d'etat where the security uh, where the security state took over state power. And he says where we are today can directly be traced back to elements of the deep state carrying out assassinations of leaders who were for peace, be it in Vietnam or detente with the Soviet Union or detente with Cuba. That this was the taking back of the state against the wishes of the American people. Mm. And he sees clearly as Trump sees. Yeah. Now what they say always, you don't, I mean, especially Trump, he's playing to audiences. And in a lot of ways with Trump, there is a performance and then there's a substance. Yeah. The substance and how he plays it often are different. Mm, yeah. I tend to put more weight on his argument that in 2024, he will be the peace candidate. When I hear Robert F. Kennedy say the same thing, yeah. and then when I hear Cornell West haltingly trying to get it together still, saying damn near the same thing. When I hear the three of them, in ways that are always not clear, saying that the people have been abandoned by their government. It, it does not take 
rocket science. It just takes, you know, being attentive and having your eyes open to realize that at least in these three, again, what we've called a, a triad of opposition, the beginnings of a profound, almost irreversible mm -hmm. political realignment. A political realignment towards the people, driven by the people, dependent upon the people. A political realignment whose objective, whether consciously stated, but objectively so, the development, the objective logic, and this is where Hegel has served the free school well, the objective logic of this situation, irrespective of the consciousness or intent of any of the individual players, is towards a political realignment against the elites. It is, and I think we will see this manifest more as we get into 2024, what the Democratic Party elite and the ruling class want to be an anti-Trump movement will turn into an anti-Democratic Party movement. That will be the coup de grace. That will be the final blow to a Democratic Party which in bad faith and disingenuously said one thing to the people, played upon the people's goodwill, played upon images from the past to get elected. That's why Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is so important. He is a living representative of a connection to the last, what he would say and many would say, the last great hope for the Democratic Party. It was Robert Kennedy, not Jimmy Carter, certainly not Barack Obama at all. You know, he was a... But Robert F. Kennedy, a living example of a past that can be re-invented uh, in this moment. a past where people believed that government could act for good, that the government could act in behalf of peace, where the people could decide who their leaders were, things like that. Now, whether or not it could all be realized under bourgeois conditions is a whole nother question. But only to compare that moment. And of course, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement played a huge role in this. The spirit of possibility, the imaginary of a whole nation. Compare that to this time. Mm 
where 80% of the people say the country is going in the wrong direction. In Philadelphia, 75, 80% of black people don't vote in spite of the fact that the leading candidate and the victor in the mayoral primary was a black woman. Where people are completely angry, alienated and turned off to the government and the political elite of the country. Robert F. Kennedy is running against that elite. Actually, Donald Trump is running against that elite. And of course, Cornell West is running against that elite. Now, the self-defined left, and you know, it's such a nebulous concept these days, who and what is the left? I think we're going to see the utter collapse and discrediting of this iteration of the left. Starting, let us say, with the alleged Marxist-Leninist left. Uh, let us remember that the second international, that is coming out of the late 1800s in Europe, particularly in Germany, formed what was called the second international. The first being the international that came out of the 1848 uprisings throughout Europe. Now, when they're saying international, they're really talking about European parties. The second international, and the First International were pretty much Marxist. The German Social Democratic Party, the largest party in Europe, was a Marxist party. It was against that left, and I mean against it, that a new international was formed called the Third International. And they dropped the name social democracy and replaced it with the name communist international or communist parties. And this was a dramatic transition and nowhere more dramatic than in Germany, where two of the great figures in the European revolutionary movement, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Leibniz, led and were leaders in the formation of the German Communist Party. They were killed on the barricades, the two of them. But the German Communist Party comes out of that struggle against social Democrats and even liberals. I say that to say, you know, there's nothing to weep over, nothing to think, well, it's an abnormal situation, to talk about a left, a Marxist left, as it were, which will uh, collapse and will go into the night utterly disgraced and condemned in the same way that Bernie Sanders, 
by a huge part of his most active um, followers and activists is today almost completely discredited by these leftists. In that same, and why, why is he discredited? Because he decided rather than fight twice, once to go with Hillary Clinton after the Democratic establishment had stolen primary elections from him, and then after the same thing had happened in 2020 to go with Joe Biden, and then to stay with Joe Biden for 2024. He's completely discredited, completely discredited. If he decided to run again, nobody would uh, support him. No activist would join him. It's the same thing with this so-called left, who have now connected themselves to the Democratic Party. And nowhere is this better reflected than in the Democratic Socialist of America and the Communist Party. Uh, something new will emerge. It happened in the, the 19-teens. It happened in Germany in 1919, 1920. It's happened in many places. Uh, the people will lose nothing in these parties and groups going out of existence. Uh, the people already are far ahead of them. To talk about the working class and the rights of unions, and then to support Biden and the Democrats, when almost all working people who were once in the Democratic Party have left it. When it was Biden who cracked down on a railroad workers strike, prevented them from striking. <clears throat> so you get my point. In many ways, the left, the Marxist-Leninist left, and I include among them the PSL, and I'll talk about that. This is a specific case. Um, they will go down with the Democratic Party. And their claims, the claims of the left, that what they are fighting is fascism, Uh, people will increasingly, and I think in the not too distant future, I think by 2024, they will realize that that claim is unsubstantiated. There is no empirical evidence. Or that white America constitutes a settler, colonial class, and fascist, and yada, yada, yada. They will be discredited. Uh, the final thing I would say is that um, the center has collapsed. Right, right, right. Uh, as um, the Irish poet said, the center will not hold. And it, it is not holding. This is, and this is always a sign of radical change about to occur. 
where the two sides face off in a fundamental struggle for power. The neoliberal permanent war, permanent austerity ruling class is going to suffer, I believe, in this realigned, political realignment, a profound and historic defeat. Uh, a profound and historic defeat. I think this is what we must prepare for. What will be the fallout? How will the ruling class respond in 2024 when they realize they cannot win? I don't think they will win. I think there will be many machinations even before 2024. I don't think they can run Biden. I don't think they can run him. Uh, already big donors, corporate and Wall Street donors to the Democratic Party are not giving the way they did in 2020 or 2012 for Obama. Uh, clearly, the base of the Democratic Party, the working class, the African-American, the Latino base are abandoning it in droves. And um, as we said, starting from the beginning, that the 14th Amendment, which is so central to legal and political arguments up till today, 14th Amendment and what it represents in terms of politics, law, and uh, race is still resonating as we go forward. And the Democratic Party and Black folk are saying it, and when Black people leave the Democratic Party, the party's over. We're their last uh, loyal, group and um and black folk young and old are saying we're tired of being played we're tired of being used um and uh, we're going to look for other options uh the uh triad of opposition the the realignment political realignment in the nation, the collapse of the consensus of uh, rule, of ruling class rule and war. All of this makes more realizable a new struggle where new American people in the Martin Luther King sense can be born. Damn. Yeah. 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 I'm um I'm glad that we took this comprehensive and holistic view and also a historical view of 
the Supreme Court decision, but how it's connected to everything in particular, the crisis in America right now and what it's going to lead to in the future. Um, because I, I feel like I'm one of many free school people who this week was trying to like frantically read up on affirmative action and like the history of the court cases. And it's very confusing, especially if the only places you can get information about this stuff is basically through the mainstream media um, who have their own agenda as well. And I think I just wanted, I had like a few thoughts that were, I guess, building off of what you were saying and responding to some of the points that you raised. But I think one of the things that has been striking about about the affirmative action thing, as I've been reading about it, um, and especially in terms of one, how the respective universities of Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill were making the case for these affirmative action programs, um, but also how many, whether it's on the left or in the media, have been kind of framing the issue is that there's this great irony, which no one is talking about in terms of, you know, the reason why these programs are argued for in a positive sense is that they quote unquote add to diversity within these elite universities. And you're right that the, like, we have to frame this very concretely within the specifically the admissions practices of elite universities because it, the, the Supreme Court ruling only really pertains to that. And it doesn't pertain to like hiring practice practices, for instance. But that, you know, if you're arguing for diversity, you know, you're making the case for affirmative action in terms of diversity. The great irony is that these universities to which affirmative action pertains to, in this case, are homogenizing places. They're like the most homogenizing place, like institutions in American life, specifically because, as you were saying, pointing out, they're designed to reproduce or to produce a ruling elite and a ruling class. And uh, there's this great irony in which, um, yeah, you have all these people arguing for uh, affirmative action because it promotes diversity when the, within these universities, while at the same time, the purpose of these universities is to basically produce a ruling elite who all think the same, you know? And, um, and I think one of the really interesting dynamics with the affirmative action stuff, and I'm interested to hear other people's thoughts is, Part of the reason why I think Trump is claiming this as a victory is because I do think that a large part of his, I guess, voting base, like let's say like uh, kind of disillusioned and dispossessed white people, they see, they see in affirmative action, I think something more than what is presented, which is it represents not just, it represents, I think, to a lot of Trump supporters, um almost a referendum on the ruling elite itself but i think part of the anger about affirmative action kind of gets displaced or kind of misrepresented in the sense that um i feel like what essentially like the trump movement is the angriest about is about the illegitimacy of the ruling class but it kind of gets kind of distorted into this thing of oh the ruling class is illegitimate because it is, I don't know, anti-white, for instance, or because it is um, taking on all of these diversity initiatives. And it becomes, then I think there's, uh, there's a way that it can get framed, especially as I've seen it formulated amongst like Trump, kind of like Trump online 
discourses in which it becomes a question of like, oh, we need to make the ruling elite fair again. We need to make these processes meritocratic again, as if this was ever like the even the idea of a meritocracy cannot actually coexist with the idea of like a ruling class. Um, and I think so I feel like I don't know, I really appreciated this discussion because it's not really so much a question of, oh, can we make the ruling class fair again or the process of becoming of joining the ruling class fair again? But really, like deep down, it is a question of is this ruling class legitimate? And if not, then what are the how is that going to be resolved? And it's not just going to be resolved by, let's say, you know, because actually, to my knowledge, um, the UC, like the California system has already actually banned affirmative action in the way that it was being practiced in the rest of the country. And the ironic thing is, is that when you look at the racial demographics of the UC system right now, um, the University of California system, and I'm sure our uh, free school members who are from California can speak more to this, but obviously this is like, obviously the greatest um, overrepresentation is from Asian Americans. And actually relatively speaking, the most underrepresentation comes from white people interestingly and actually um black like african-american students are basically equally uh, represented in terms of who's admitted and then the actual african-american population of california and so i think yeah one of the ironies is that yeah like if you're basically going to make these elite universities similar to what the uc system has already instituted like it's just be going to become you're going to be overrun by asians and actually proportionally, it's most likely that the white population in these universities is gonna go down the most. And, um, and the last thing I wanted to say is that, especially with regards to like this whole Asian thing, um, I just think that there's a really great irony and hypocrisy in the fact that at least amongst circles of people that I know, and I know that like uh, some of us in free school like our Asians who are part, very much part of like this whole like elite university uh, kind of um, social strata. And many of us went to places like Cornell or Penn or other places. Um, and the irony about it is that the strongest uh, voices who claim to represent Asian Americans are people who went to these elite institutions and are gonna say basically like, um, are the ones who are the most pro-affirmative action when it's not even an open secret, but something that's openly discussed amongst basically Asian families who are aspiring towards this, which is that when you're, when you're trying to apply to these elite universities, everyone knows that to be Asian is to have something docked against you. And what was revealed in these respective court cases with Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill is that literally these admissions, uh, I guess processes were created with uh, like, you know, they would create kind of like rankings or scoring systems for applicants and it would be docked against, it would be a negative, a, a negative score for you if you were Asian. Like that was literally part of the admissions practice, which I think is pretty messed up. But that, um, and so, yeah, basically I bring that up to say that there's, uh, I think, I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of hypocrisy in the fact that all of these Asians who are in these elite universities are the ones who are basically feel that they have to be the most vocal in basically defending affirmative action on behalf of black people, but that they're the ones who also had to basically game the system to try to appear as least Asian as possible in order to get into these universities in the first place. 
Um, and so I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of irony in that because there's a lot of basically a lot of it is about controlling the narrative too, in which you have a lot of like Asian American advocacy groups who are all products basically of the, like these elite IVs and these elite university systems in which they're claiming to represent Asian Americans and how Asian Americans feel about affirmative action. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of, I think, deception involved in that in which you're claiming to represent people, but actually you are the people themselves who are, uh, yeah, the most, uh, I guess, in some ways, trying to distance yourself from being Asian in order to get into these universities in the first place. Um, maybe that's an overgeneralization and there's more, I guess, nuance to it, but I just wanted to bring that up because I feel like the other thing is that I know we were talking about this a little bit before free school started, but I feel like for people who did not grow up in the United States, it's like the way that the admissions process works in order to get into university is very like from an outsider's perspective, it is basically insane and illogical, like how you basically have to like present this narrative of yourself, like as you have to almost like game, you have to learn how to game the system in a way which is, I think even, especially for, um, yeah, I, I think the last thing I'll say is that there's a, especially for Asians, like who come into this country, part of the reason why I think many Asian families are still fixated on getting into universities because we bring with us this kind of um, idea of meritocracy, which is very deeply ingrained in, in many Asian cultures of, um, this is why Asian kids are, trained to be so good at the SATs, but that, um, yeah, it just like, there is this idea of even why you come to the United States is because you, you believe in this idea of meritocracy and that America can provide a kind of more meritocratic and more democratic um, means by which to uh, advance in society. But at the same time, actually how the system works, especially the admissions process, but essentially the process for reproducing the elite itself is the antithesis of that. And so I feel like also Asians are gonna have to like also grapple with this and actually examine like, oh, do we actually want our children to become part of this? And when you get to a point where Harvard is basically composed of, let's say like 30 to 40% Asians, like there, I think there will have to be a kind of reckoning amongst Asian Americans as well. But yeah, those are just some, some of my thoughts. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that lots of other people have, have thoughts on this too. Um, if I, I just wanted to add to what you're saying, it's just a short comment. I really appreciate Doc you going over this in you know in its the full historical analysis of what the 14th Amendment meant and what what is happening today. Because I think I agree with Jeremiah. Sometimes it's really baffling to try and understand you know all these emails we are getting from Penn right now to try and understand why there is so much panic. Because to be honest, when I walk onto Penn's campus or walk into my department, I don't feel it's very diverse. I think it's one individual. Everybody has the same opinions. And if you're even slightly different ideologically from the pack, you're ostracized. So I don't yeah. know what diversity yeah. um, they, they're, they're claiming to you know be committed to and trying to reassure us that despite this judgment, we are committed to diversity. There is no diversity. And so, you know, it is clear that this is not really about the 14th Amendment. This is about maintaining their legitimacy mm -hmm. and their moral authority to control the narrative of, you know, 
what is the democratic way or what is the democratic choice for not just Americans, but worldwide, you know, for, for institutions in India, for young people in India. So it's, it's really is this panic is about losing, you know, that legitimacy. Uh, because if you, if you don't have this diverse, diverse community, you know, rep with like representation from all, uh, you know, all the minority groups in this country, then you cannot claim to, you know, speak for, but then you don't, you already don't speak for, for, for people. You just say one thing, everybody is, there's one mind, you know? So yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, I just wanted to say that. I agree with what Jeremiah was saying. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I, I just have a short uh, thing to say about my experience, which is when I was uh, applying to colleges in the United States for my PhD, only a, a few select universities asked me to write a diversity statement in addition to uh, a statement of purpose. So a statement of purpose is required for all universities and only two universities that I applied to, which was UNC Chapel Hill and Yale, uh, they asked me for a diversity statement. Now, I didn't know what to write in my diversity statement. And it was it's only later that I realized that the people, that the people who actually put in the effort to write this diversity statement, they are considered to, uh, they, they are, far more likely to be considered into admission because that's the that's the impression that they give i am willing to portray myself as uh i'm willing to take advantage of all the identities that i uh, that i can gather from somewhere i'm poor i'm uh, brown and whatever all of these things um if you're willing to take that into consideration and say that, okay, these are the reasons why I need to become like the white man. That makes you more likely to be accepted into these elite universities. And I realized that a lot, a, a long time later. In the end, it was an optional diversity statement and I never ended up writing it. And I never got a call from these universities. Because I think that that's how, in a way, they, they sort of select for people like, okay, this person can become oh, that's interesting. part yeah. of uh, our clique. Yeah. He will have a brown face or a black face or a Mongol or Mongoloid features. <laughs> <laughs> but, sorry. but they will be of the same mind. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I agree with <laughs> what everyone's saying. Uh, I think, you know, this thing about like the distance from like the way we were talking, we've been talking about it and the way you sort of went over the history talk, it's making me think of like so many parallels of, mm -hmm. of this whole question of affirmative action, like, like, you know, the parallels being as to like how much it fits into the whole narrative of identity politics, like in, in one way, like, you know, to what Shantanu was saying, this idea that the, like, you know, really the characteristics that you're championing or that you want for somebody to be accepted into the ruling class, so to speak, is, is really this idea 
of you know very individualized and you know personal statements and this also makes young people think in certain terms it makes you think of of yourself as you know separated from the rest of the world it makes mm-hmm. you think of yourself mm-hmm. as like you know this unique on this unique human being but the the thing is it's it's you know it falls flat on its head because this idea of uniqueness is being reproduced by everyone or is being encouraged to be reproduced by everyone and like you know this totally falls short and the moment you join these you know universities and so on and so forth and you know then you look at who are the people like you know, pulling the strings the ones at the top are always you know it it, it is the ruling class it's always white <laughs> and you know, other characteristics and so on but uh, like you know like this is like something that's completely missed when we talk about this question of affirmative action who is it really benefiting and i think uh, like already uh, like you know with the last couple of days all these articles coming out i think uh, like you know besides all this conversation about the university setting and so forth yeah this question of you know corporate diversity like corporate you know industries they are really like freaking out mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Like, you know they are worried that you know they're de- like they and like their legitimacy and their credibility to sort of you know be the um like the woke industrial group which like in which like which magically has the benefit of all mankind in its best interest that's what they want us to think like how of, of course all of it is is going to fall flat on its head and you know this narrative can't go on like what they have been championing for the last few years okay, yeah I was also going to add um correct me if I'm wrong but okay I don't think that there are any black people from Philadelphia that end up at a school like Penn for example and I I just want to make that statement yeah because in 4 years there I don't think I ever met a black person from Philly and um even if there is an African American quota most of the people from who I met were yeah yeah the children of African immigrants or uh, African immigrants who are a part of the most elite sections of their respective countries like themselves yeah yeah very very interesting i'm glad i'm glad that i'm with y'all to think about this man it would have been it would have been very difficult to frame it uh completely uh, otherwise and uh so uh, uh my my opinion on uh, uh affirmative action in these the diversity programs has evolved immensely since uh, i guess i uh, participated in a lot of uh, these different programs uh, in undergrad to uh, get funding for research. I wanted to do a PhD. And uh, I remember, first of all, I was like, hmm, these, uh, I don't, uh, like, yes, I used to, there are there are disadvantages that certain groups in this country face. Uh, but then like when all the, a lot of these black and Latino kids that I was seeing and I was like, yo, y'all, I got money, man. Y'all don't see, <laughs> y'all don't look like life is so bad all the time. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And, uh, uh, I, I remember a lot of, a lot of these, uh, uh, programs really mess with your mind. I feel so like one, one of the things that, uh, uh, they take, for example, is like for, First, like, okay, you, you, you should be proud of, you know, you, you come from this great culture and maybe you don't come from the best background, but you still were capable and that's, you know, that's representative of the potential of your people and whatnot. But uh, they give you this victim mentality that, you know, the world is against you and, and uh, everybody is, everybody's a racist in some kind of way. And it make you give you this like hypersensitivity to like anything 
uh, where uh, I, I, I think the word they use is microaggressions, where if like a, you know, a, a white person or anybody else talks to you, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe in a stern way because you're misbehaving or something, you know, you're a little, little snotty undergrad you got bad manners or whatever that, that that you're 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 being discriminated against when it's like no nah, man quiet down <laughs> class has started <laughs> and uh yeah this victim mentality and then uh you know the another thing that you know i i feel like i uh you know you you, you kind of embody this this uh, way of thinking and to say oh you know you represent they teach you, you represent the aspirations of your people you know you're supposed to be able to achieve this great thing and then once you're at this top high and top place you able to reach your arm down and bring people up with you but like i've been that and I once once i started i believe this stuff and then i started moving along and i'm like i i don't see the end of this you know what what, what you just end up doing is using the name of your people and you're getting farther and farther away from them uh, and further using them as justification to advance your own career, advance your own interests. And, and then at what point do you actually change the circumstances that result in your people not being able to achieve things that other people should be able to achieve? I, I'm talking about, you know, like the context of, uh, you know, I, was, I wanted to get a PhD. I was in research programs. It's like you're supposed to do well in your classes, do a lot of research get the PhD and then all of a sudden you got to, you know, fight for your life to get tenure. And then maybe when you're like 40 years old, you can uh, mentor or accept a hand, a handful of uh, other uh, black or Latino kids that happen to uh, have been admitted for undergrad and maybe they'll decide to get a PhD too or uh, something like that. Uh, and, and so uh, really, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't change the circumstances that your uh, peers might find themselves in. They're not going to take uh, drug dealers out of these high schools. They're not going to make the teachers treat these kids with respect so that they want to go to school and learn and, be and believe in themselves. Uh, and uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, I did feel uh, that uh, uh, it was a path to uh, make it to the elite, to have you paraded around and say, look, this person, this this Latino boy or this black boy here, he made it to the professorship. He he made this position. This is evidence that you can make it in this country, and that everybody, if they work hard enough, can uh, uh, do whatever they want. When first of all, at least you know, getting first, just getting admitted to these colleges. The reason why anybody cares is because most people can't. You know, they only have so many seats, and everybody wants to go to them. So the, the reason it's cool anyways is because no one, no one, most people, even amongst uh, white demographics, most people can't get accepted anyways. Uh, so by, by definition, it's not uh, uh, democratic. Uh, and and uh, second of all, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, just because you have a, a couple of uh, faces that uh, talk and think and behave and their whole life's purpose is to uh, live like white people, be at the top of the society and advance your own interests. That's, that doesn't change much for everybody. Uh, you know, just and, uh, oh, wait, you should go ahead. Just, just, just uh, one last thing. Uh, seeing, I, I can see why white people could get upset at this too, uh, but that, oh, you know, the, uh, we work hard and all these other minorities or whatever are getting uh, preferences, but it is, it is a question of just being, being uh, a part of the elite and, uh, I don't think they should focus on it either. I think uh, all peoples have uh, greater priorities uh, and these great political tasks that we've discussed.
Yeah, I mean, just to add, like, I really like what Doc is saying that this is an elite discourse. What is racism? It's the gutting of public education. You know, it's the, the disinvestment in these schools. It's the shutting down of these public universities where people genuinely have a chance to improve their lives. Um, and then, so then this is not actually about, this is not actually a, a racist or an anti-racist thing. The real anti-racist thing is to give everybody opportunities. And that's not what this is about. This is about lifting a few people in and turning them into people who can reproduce the same system. Um, and then, but the whole virtue signaling discourse, you can't even have a democratic conversation about this anymore. And I, I also, I mean, also this thing of colorblindness, you know, this is a colorblind thing and the whole Ketanji Brown thing. I just, I don't know. It's just, I mean, is it such a bad thing to want to judge a person by the, their character? You know, I mean, is that a racist thing? You know, and, and I don't know. I mean, this whole thing of just getting people to see people purely based on their identities. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just something so, and then to say that that's racist, to, to want to actually connect to people on a human level. Um, I don't know. I also have a problem with that. And yeah, I mean, it's all just a very divisive. I also liked the, what Huey Newton wrote in Bakke versus the, what the, his, his opinions about this. I was reading it. And part of it's interesting because he, I think the Supreme Court, it was a case basically saying that you cannot only consider race in um, in admissions to a certain uh, medical school program, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, it was basically, my understanding is that uh, the uh, University of California set up a, a medical school, set up a special program to admit uh, black doctors. And I believe they basically had set up a, a racial quota, like that 10% of uh, seats in the, every medical school class had to be for black students because they were like 10% of the population of California. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he ha he made an interesting point that um, to take like to make to say that the only criteria is the most economically disadvantaged. Well, that will include black people. It will also include people from Appalachia, you know, the people that he was um, in struggle with. And he was also saying that just because you admit more black people into this program doesn't mean that they will necessarily go back and help disadvantaged communities. If that's your real criteria, make that a uh, something that has to be agreed on by admissions. So, I mean, in what way is this not a class, a product, a project of class reproduction? How is this actually uh, a program of opening? And yeah, I mean, just I don't know all these struggles over. Yeah, I mean, just the, the, the deeper discussion about a true democratic opening of education and opportunity to the people of this country is really what is not a part of this discourse. Um, and so people are saying, oh, our democracy is under attack. But that's not, that's not the question on the table. The question is the reproduction of the elite, just like everyone has been saying. Um, and what it, Yeah, if I, I wanted to add, um, yeah, this it's interesting uh, what Doc was saying. Something I'm thinking of is this thing of the, uh, in some ways, unique and I think mostly negative role that law plays in American politics, usually undemocratic role. Um, that it's played. And so on this issue, I was also looking into this uh, Bakke uh, ruling and stuff. And so uh, my understanding of what happened is uh, that the, for example, this program at University of California coming out of like the period of the civil rights movement and stuff, they were like, 
okay, substantively, we can say that this community has been, you know, has a historical discrimination and so on, and is very underrepresented in a profession where you need, it's a profession directly connected to the people, you know, medicine, serving uh, communities and so on. So they made this uh, program that had some, you know, substance and that they said, okay, 10% of seats or something like that are going to be for uh, black students. But then when it was challenged in court by a white student that wasn't admitted, um, the Supreme Court ruled, and I believe it was Justice Powell wrote in his ruling that uh, you can't have these quotas, you can't reserve 10%, which in some ways threw out anything where you could prove like, in terms of evidence, the results of any of these programs uh, addressing historical wrongs, but you can consider diversity. So there, I think they gave a legal basis to diversity can be considered. And so it's, a, I felt that that was a big contrast between diversity as a, as a good public good versus actually programs that would address historical wrongs. And like, you know, I think other societies that have used this affirmative action programs, like for example, in India, with the concept of reservations, that's kind of targeted at specific communities and says, okay, we're going to reserve X amount of seats for a particular community that's been historically backwards or been oppressed or discriminated against. Or in, I think in China with ethnic minorities and in other places, but here they, they only had that for a brief period and then threw it out and replaced it with the idea of diversity, which is this uh, nebulous thing that can be again it could just be used to diversify the elites. I mean there are you could also argue there are problems with having reserved seats and so on. That may also may not be a perfect solution, but there is a I feel like there's a distinction between that and then as Jeremiah was saying, um, the different people I also was seeing online like people involved in the Trump movement who are uh, applauding or supporting this case, they're also targeting this thing of diversity. And it has been so tied up with the neoliberal elites that I think for an average white working class person, when they hear diversity or maybe even affirmative action, the first thing that comes to mind is Barack Obama, or the first thing that comes to mind is Michelle Obama, or I think now this uh, Justice Ketanji Brown. And I was looking into um, her as well. And so what she wrote in her ruling, again, the excerpts that I read, she again just talked about, oh, okay, race is real in society. I don't even know if she used the word racism. I think she just said race is a reality and we can't act as if race is not a reality. And again, it was this discussion about diversity and, you know, it's framed by these postmodern theories of intersectionality and so on. It's not really a historically grounded discourse talking about the need for desegregation or anti-discrimination laws in uh, education um and so and, and and the irony is that uh, she actually had to recuse herself and this is very instructive of from the uh harvard case because she herself had been on the governing board of harvard <laughs> so you see where this kind of uh, liberal thinking about affirmative action is coming from um so and yeah as megna said i think this entire discourse is ignoring where real desegregation is needed. I mean, of course, the uh, building trades and skilled labor, the uh, and obviously the public education system, public schools, and then public universities, the majority of which people are, uh, that's where the majority of people are gonna go. Like the statistic doc was saying, I think it's a, out of about 5,000 colleges and universities that offer undergraduate degrees, I think only about uh, one to 200 are considered highly selective in the sense that they admit less than 50%. And then the amount that I think are truly elite probably is at most like five to 10 schools or maybe even less that uh, directly take you to the elite circle. So you have to focus on, uh, you know, those, those universities that are really going to serve people. And, uh, 
And yeah, I definitely agree. We have to avoid falling into this uh, elite discourse that the MSNBCs and CNNs are are trying to use. Um, so, yeah. Well, what I wanted to say is also to echo a lot of what um, everyone is saying. I really appreciate it. I feel like we took our time to really think through, um, you know, the role of law, but also the role of education, but also just like pinpoint this discussion again as like, a very elite driven it's all reflective of the crisis of legitimacy right now and just as we were talking i think it, it occurred to me almost for the first time and uh, as we were talking that this is the way the discussion is framed right now around affirmative action feels so different than the way even even well, we just did a, you know our events or study of paul robeson and how he even during the huac testimonies like the in the the, invest, the, in the interrogators had asked him like, "Well, you've succeeded so far. How come? Mm -hmm. Like, what 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 more do you want? Why do you have to act?" But he said, "You should not use that against me." And in fact, I feel like one of the most beautiful lessons we learned from him is just the more he achieved, the more actually he wanted to be closer to the working class. Right. And that's a lesson that I feel is if you just don't. I feel like Asians need to learn this very much. Those who fall into, I think, some of the I feel like traps that um, the society lays out for what success means and how much of it is so equated with assimilating yourself into white whiteness. And then also uh, another question I feel like I have, I'm just starting to think about is just how, how different also this conversation is from Du Bois and how as the first black man to get a PhD from Harvard, of course, <laughs> he would always say I was at Harvard, but I was not of Harvard, right? right? And then also his idea of like, I feel like all that we've learned, I feel like from in our study of his writings, his vision around education have led us closer to ideas around, you know, the immortal child, how important it is to furnish a real education for young for the future of humanity. Like of course, never brought up in our conversation, but like that's why we are trying to, I think, um, yeah, you know, reinsert this question of like, what about public schools? What about all these schools that are meant to serve people, working people, working people's children? And then I, I'm taking some time to think about this some more too. Also, the idea of like the talented tent was always meant to be, and then also revised to become the guiding one hundredth to become all of these notions in which like, yes, there is going to be a furnishing of a vanguard, but the vanguard is never separated from the people. Right. All these things that I feel as if like, I feel like Eddie, when you're talking about like, there's a way in which you can think about, like think about your, where you come from, your, your, your background, and then make yourself to be somebody who helps your people not just succeed, but also flourish in all these different ways after like, to whom much is given, much is ex like that. Much I, is required. Much is required. Yeah, there's also a way in which I think Baldwin has a poem that ha ends that with that line. I think is very beautiful. But all those things I feel as if are very important um, touchstones that I desperately do wish that more conversations around education would just simply mm -hmm. have in the even mm -hmm. in the back of their minds mm -hmm. but that's precisely why these figures are so made almost so inaccessible to young people mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. to yeah and so that's just a, that was a brief comment or just sort of like i'm still thinking it through 
but it's just a stark contrast and I feel like maybe the sort of way you frame it is like, yeah, is it really a crisis of democracy? Well, like these sort of ideals from Du Bois and Robeson's time are just so unfulfilled today. Of course, it's a crisis of democracy, but not in the way that you would expect that the ruling class would have you think of it as. Yeah, yeah. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about how you connected that to the crisis of the left, too. Yeah. And talking about the constitutions, how we amend um, the constitution in regard, in relationship, or in also thinking about how in the French Revolution, they had very, a variety of constitutions or rewritings of yeah, constitutions. Yeah, histories, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which reminded me why, like the French Revolution, was important as a template or a way of um, thinking about how to maneuver in the Third American Revolution, like with Ho Chi Minh. Um, I think he written something on the French Revolution, or like Ho Chi Minh as a Toussaint Louverture um, of Vietnam. That was something that Paul Robeson um, talked about too. Um, and like, cause like, what is the left and the right today? The center is not what it was mm -hmm. as in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, and like what? So there is a, like, what is the purpose of the left in a democracy? Wow. To me, I'm, because like in, a, in America or maybe in general, I'm not sure, like the point of a variety of individuals interacting with one another under the basis of law um, that also <laughs> like allows for freedom of speech um, the way like to certain, like because of like a democracy, what is a democracy um, is on my mind as um, these people that we're talking about, like Robert Kennedy, Trump, and Cornell are also emerging mm -hmm. in regards to like what they're tapping into as people um, in relationship to the people of this country today. And like, I wanna know what black people's response will be to Kennedy mm -hmm. because it's not just like, this is not just a gonna be a democratic push. Like there's a variety of opinion um, with black people. It's mm -hmm. not gonna, mm -hmm. they're not just gonna go to Kennedy just because they're Democrats mm -hmm. as the same way that they're not just gonna mm -hmm. go to Trump just because mm -hmm. they're Republicans, but mm -hmm. they have opinions um, and realities um, that, are the, that are in, in my mind, not in the same consolidation or at the same level as it might be, but it's still communication with one another, I think. But that's just being said, like, when I'm thinking about the purpose of a right or a left or, mm -hmm. you know, groups like the Communist Party mm -hmm. or whatever that be, like the Black Panther Party or whatever, in a democracy is also to develop a certain you know, just a group of, or of people. Like, in the same way that the NAACP represented a Black middle class and upper class, um, will they just support 
or will the NAACP just support the Democratic Party today in the same way um, that it had once done with other things? Or like, so that's in my mind in regards to this other question that I have, which is about like basically, because it means that the fourth American revolution that we've been thinking about is ultimately the deciding factor one or one of the deciding factors for like this century, like for like, you know what I mean? Like it's really, it's going to be an important piece because it, we don't look in the same ways or maybe we're learning from a tradition, but it isn't, a tradition is not the same as like what is in the present either. Um, like I think that Robert Kennedy Jr. and and with studying with and us in particular studying King, we're learning from uh, where we once were to know where we are to go. And where we want where we where where we are coming from. Yeah. And what our tradition is, a revolutionary tradition um, is and um where we are to go, mm -hmm. but it's just to know where we're to, where we're going to be going. We need a framework. We need a, a philosophy to think about that. Um, but it's but it's just that this fourth American Revolution will be decisive because, in the same way that the Russian uh, Revolution was decisive for an entire world to emerge of the people, of democracy. Um, like the fourth, this thing about the fourth American revolution is wrapping my mind. Just in how you talk about like the state of the whole people and like China today, mm -hmm. like what what kind of democracy will emerge That's right. That's question. Yeah. Um, yeah. today because mm -hmm. the Democratic Party, if run under or th a thought through Kennedy, will ultimately not be a Democratic Party of the deep state mm -hmm. or the ruling elite. Like, if the Republican Party, so it's like the purpose of the party, the purpose of the left, I think is, is just on my mind. But another thing I just wanted to say that I just think is interesting is that in a democracy, um, that I guess I've just been thinking a lot about democracy mm -hmm. while you've been talking because it allows for people to have an opinion. Um, and I think a left, because I'm also like, well, is there still a left? Well, there's still Glenn Greenwald, the Julian Assange's, the, um, but like Chris Hedges is not particularly like a progressive left like thinker. But well, why, why do you say that? Progressive meaning like that he will, be, I'm not sure. Progressive meaning like outside yeah. of like what the mm -hmm. left prescribes mm -hmm. or trusts people. Like there, yeah. I'm the just different. Yeah, like what is a progressive left versus a like a like some to be able, but to be able to think freely yes. is important. I think that's that's true. I wouldn't say that Cornell West is not progressive, but so I'm just saying like these kind of categories in my mind are trying to be defined and I don't uh, have a place 
in the same way that I look at Grace Hedges yeah. that I would to Alexander Mercurius or Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Mm -hmm. um, but they are still left-leaning thinkers. Like they come out of that tradition of thinking they want to see peace and democracy in the world. Mm -hmm. And in a different mm -hmm. way that Chris Hedges mm -hmm. sees peace and democracy, I, I would assume, but I, you know, I'm not. Mm -hmm. And because it's because the questions of the left have to concern peace and democracy. Yeah. Russia, how you see Russia is important, how you see China is important, um, how you see the Democratic Party or Biden is also important. Um, meaning it can be said that because uh, Obama was a president that, well, the Democratic Party is a progressive movement. But in what way was Obama a president? In what country and for what purpose did he serve? <laughs> and how did he also act? You know, and why? And why is it possible for a nearly, basically, uh, illogical man to stand as president for the past year or whatever to Biden in this time and also be de democratic and progressive? Like that doesn't make sense to me. Now, to that once uh, again, as in like. I'm just saying with the like with Biden, not even solely just like, oh, he's a warmonger and like mm -hmm. point a finger mm -hmm. to a man because there's ways that people make excuses for people. Mm -hmm. But to actually have like difficulty making sense of the world and answering mm -hmm. um, questions of poverty mm -hmm. and questions that the people demand of a democracy. Um, how can you also say that with I stand by Biden, and that makes me progressive. How can we say that that makes no, that's right. that's sense? Yeah. So yeah. the only way the only way you can make political sense of it and still call yourself a progressive or a revolutionary is to claim that the opposition to Biden is fascism. Mm, that, that's the only, and that's, that's the claim. But that's assuming yeah. that a fa fascism. What's that's fascism? My, that, my point. Right. My point. I can call you a fascist. I don't like Seraphine. Yeah. You're a fascist. So you can say. Okay, you fascist? Yeah. No, but, yeah. But see, that's the thing. At the center that the the center that the so-called left or that Chris Hedges kind of also asserts this kind of fake center to hold this fake center between this, you know, uh, basically anti-progressive Supreme Court. And the progressive Biden, which is just, you know, against, you know, abortion mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. affirmative action, also mm -hmm. is an ahistorical, yeah, no, it's okay. illogical, and a basic lie about the moment in history that we're in. So the left would also have to think about peace in regards to what, you know, what America, what America will be. Um, to in the relationship that it must have in the world for whatever, in regards as a as a as a guideline to thinking about Julian Assange or basic questions of mm -hmm. public welfare, health, and education. Um, but that so like the whole thing about the crisis of the left and like what the left is to me is just running in my mind because yeah. it's a question about how any individual in this country mm -hmm. can also think for themselves, be, be able to actualize their thoughts in a democracy. Um, 
and talk with one another without being so polarized. Um, but okay. I just wanted to go off something Serafina is saying about like what is progressive and what is progression. And this is why you need a sense of history. What does it mean for history to be progressing? And I really liked, actually, I think Doc had said this on the Garland Nixon interview um, that, yeah, like what is fascism? Fascism started when they, or it really won. It won its complete control over the US state with the assassination of JFK because that was the last time of the people's will for peace uh, and democracy was really expect, expressed in some ways in their, uh, le their, in their leaders. And after that, it was just, it, it was, there was no real discourse. And for the first time you have an opening up of that uh, discourse, which is also why, I mean, the question of fascism is really important because is it a question of racism narrowly defined in some kind of identity category, or is it a question of like what visions for human freedom are allowed to flourish? And this is why RFK is so important. Is, is he not a victim of fascism as the son of a man who was killed by this fascist movement? And the way that Chris Hedges is defining it, he is not. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, I, I just, in terms of this history, why it's so important and why I, I, it's, it's really hard to understand why people who live through this history, seeing this fascist takeover, are then calling Trump a fascist. It's almost like they've just completely erased everything that came before. Um, and yeah, like this painter, Ralph Fascinella, has this really beautiful painting called, and he was a, he was a communist, I believe, um, or at least part of these movements. And he was really influenced by Marco Antonio, who's also um, a, a congressman who um, was one of the, these fighters for peace. Um, and Du Bois was actually the pallbearer at his funeral. And um, he has this, this, in this painting, it's really beautiful. It's, 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 it's called Painting to the Victims of Fascism. I think that's what it's called. And you have like the coffins of Martin Luther King, JFK, Malcolm X. And like just this, I feel like just this, under, and with, you know, the American flag and the peace dove and all this, I feel like this understanding of what is fascism really has to be clarified because it is related to this question of what is progressive, what is history, what stage of history are we in, and what is democracy? Um, and yeah, I just wanted to um, contribute that going off of what Serafina is saying. Yeah, because I think also a lot of the conversation that we're having, I think, goes back to like what we've been talking about, which is that we're in a time of like shifting categories. And this is the left and the right, like who is the elite, like who, what is the composition of the elite? Because I think part of what the affirmative action cases are trying to do is basically saying like, oh, this is like a white black, like this is a race thing. And wherever Asian people lie, like you have to decide where you stand between white and black. And I feel like that is basically completely plastered all over the mainstream media where Asian people feel defensive because on the one hand, like they're torn, like they want acceptance into these elite institutions, but then on the other hand, they don't wanna be called racist for wanting that. And so, but I feel like that's, that's like, I think the most diminishing way to think of it. And so I think part of it too is like, I feel like we're in a time when, yeah, you need new thought 
new theories. And I think it's better to actually yeah, break things down into the history and like the actual phenomena that you're observing and then try to build it up into a theory, which might need like it requires a new left. It requires like thinking like, what do we actually mean by like the essence and the substance of democracy? Because actually, I think part of it, too, is like when you think of the Supreme Court, <laughs> the fact that you have these people that are not elected or chosen by the people at all, but serve basically lifetime sentences. I feel like it's easy to say like, oh, like, is that really democratic? Like, why do these people get to decide? But then all of the momentum basically gets tipped into like, oh, but you can vote for Biden, who like put forward like the better alternatives or whatever. And but I feel like that's also part of the problem with the left, which is that in terms of their preferred categories, it's socialism over democracy and like the substance of democracy. And yeah, I guess one other thing is like thinking about this reproduction of the elite. Like, I just think it's it's pretty deep psychologically, because basically, like when you're literally 16 or 17 years old and you think you have a shot at gaining acceptance into these elite institutions, like the fact that you have to write these personal essays and you're like trying to figure out who you are as a human being. But then you're also literally like configuring yourself in the gaze of this elite admissions committee who gets to like decide your future. And then you're like, oh, like, how am I going to contort myself so that you like me? And I feel like for a lot of people, it is like basically racially loaded where you're like, oh, how do you present yourself as like Asian, as in a minority, but not like a robot, except you actually are basically like contorting yourself to fit a certain like white gaze. And I feel like it has pretty lasting, like it has lasting implications when I think you make it in because the whole point of making it in is like what you're saying is to like join a finishing school where basically you're inundated with like the thoughts and the ideas and the opinions of the elite to make yourself like them. And so I just think it's extra ironic that when Asian people, like Asian Americans who graduate from these elite institutions then feel compelled to defend affirmative action, you think that you're doing it because you're like Asian, but actually I feel like you're doing it as a liberal white person, <laughs> like trying to protect a certain like liberal elite, like, veneer of diversity where diversity is not like a public good to actually like be democratic it's a market good that helps you like gain acceptance and like i guess entrance into the elite and so yeah i just feel like there's a lot of stuff but i think the way that like basically free school proceeds every time like something big happens that like takes over the news cycle and actually does like represent something i feel like i really appreciate how we break things down into like, okay, like what is the essence? Like, where did it start from? <laughs> like, what does the law even mean in this country? And how, like, what, what are the actual consequences of it? Who is it directed towards? And yeah, I feel like this thing of like the private colleges being their own thing and this thing of education as a public good and how little, yeah, we talk about like public education is really stark. Um, yeah, I think that's, oh yeah and so i think it's just like so like it, we have to talk about this not just as a reaction to the way that mainstream media is trying to frame or like monopolize the discussion like i think that's really important and it's interesting because so much of like the left's response i think is tied into the mainstream media position and so i feel like it also kind of reveals yeah like this diversity this dei thing is basically another arm of just like the mainstream elite. Yeah, I just 
wanted to add to the discussion and yeah, I agree with Nuri and Serafina in the sense that like this whole affirmative action thing has everything to do with the questions of left and right as categories because the thing that was really, I guess, striking to me when the news first broke was yeah, like it did bring me back to basically when when I was in college. And I feel like the affirmative action, being pro-affirmative action is always kind of presented to you as being like almost a pillar of being like either on the left or being like a liberal or being quote unquote progressive. And the thing is, is that I guess one can argue whether or not like let's say the ruling class or the democrats actually wanted this ruling to happen like whether they actually planned for it or whether it was something that happened as a result of other circumstances and all of that but i think regardless of whether this was something that was like planned by the ruling class i do think that there is a note it's almost like the way that whether it's the media or like leftist groups the way that like almost like the subtext of how they respond to it is almost with a note of relief because to them it allows you to re to almost reinscribe like more comfortable categories of what is left and what is right at a time when the political landscape itself is changing so yeah, much yeah. and when the categories of it's not even so much about left and right but i think if you it's it's like understandings of what the left can be or should be because the way that let's say someone like Chris Hedges interprets the left and the way that let's say, yeah, I don't know, like PSL, whatever, that you see the left as being, Doc said this before, the permanent opposition group or the gadfly to the ruling class permanently, right? But the way that Doc was talking about the left in terms of, you know, the overcoming of the social democrats by the communists and all of that throughout the 20th century. And also this pertains to, to the civil rights movement, which people don't understand is that it's not about being a permanent opposition within the context of a system that doesn't really change that much. It is, can the left be a vehicle for the, um, can the left be a vehicle basically for the achievement of broader forms of democratic rule by the people? And I feel like that part of it, which is basically when we talk about this new, these new emerging coalitions, I think sometimes it can get confusing when you use the terms of left and right. But I feel like the way that we have understood it is to the extent that the left is necessary or useful as a category, it is as a vehicle for the people to achieve higher stages of democratic rule and not to just be like, can you win for, or can you always be in a position of wanting to win further concessions from the ruling class? And what people don't understand about the civil rights movement is that it's not, they see it like the way that it gets presented as like just a reform thing is very misleading because the civil rights movement ultimately was a movement for the people to exercise greater democratic rule over the United States, over US society. And it was incomplete because yeah, like I think all the reasons that we know, but that that is the thrust, that was the thrust of the civil rights movement. And it was not just a thing to like, oh, can we win certain concessions from 
the ruling elite. And that was what scared, um, that was what ultimately scared the ruling class about King, also about the Kennedys too. And, um, and yeah, I feel like the other thing about this whole like fascism discourse and Trump and all these people is, I think whether you identify yourself as part of the left or not, part of the reason why we as in the free school continue to want to talk about the Trump thing, the Trump phenomenon, the Trump movement, RFK Jr., the people who support RFK Jr., Cornell West, is because we, I feel like the fundamental distinction is that like we as in the free school, and I think many people in the United States, especially those who are the most against war, we see ourselves as responsible for what this government does. And we assume responsibility for what this government does in terms of its war policies and war agenda around the world. And the extent to which we see potential in something like the Trump movement is precisely because we do not want to basically abdicate responsibility for what the ruling class does in terms of waging war around the world, pushing us to the brink of nuclear war. We don't want to abdicate that responsibility to, um, to anyone else other than to basically say, this is something that the American people have to accept the awesome responsibility towards if they see themselves as in any form as interested in the question of democracy, which I think most people in this country are. Um, and I, I don't know, I just wanted to say that because I, I feel like people may question like, oh, why do you guys talk about, you know, like Trump? Why do you guys talk about Glenn Greenwald? Like all of these figures so much. And it's because fundamentally we are interested in, and I think have basically like made the decision that whether it's us as individuals, us as a collective, us as part of connected to a larger developing and evolving movement among the American people, we accept the responsibility of what this country is and what it, what it currently does, but also what it can be. And I think that that has to, I guess that distinction has to be made. And I feel like people can choose whether or not they want to accept that kind of responsibility or not. But I feel like many, basically in free school, we have accepted that kind of responsibility because we see ourselves as part of this country, whether or not even this country like has seen us as part of the country. I feel like that's like a separate thing, but yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I wanted to say that, that too. No, I agree with you because technically in my mind, I'm like when in a democracy, um, all people um, be conscious, responsible agents, to make a society like work because um the whole because what you said Jeremiah about the left being like not only just not just the word like progressive but just like be being able to make society in like a good way um and the right being a conservative like these words have meaning because of their historical development and how they arise in the first place. Like that's how, why we look at Henry Winston. That's why we look at um, King Paul Robeson. Like how does a left in 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 this in, in this case in, in America uh, and what does a left mean? Um, but like at the same time, I'm thinking about how like 
in a democracy, for a complete democracy, all people would be engaged in the same way that we're engaged with ideas, philosophy, art, culture, mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. essence as the basis of a democracy. That's how, but it is anti-democratic. Like it's more totalitarian or more authoritarian to diminish the people's right. um, potentiality the key. The key. and in right. education, in health, in life itself, like a com complete submergence of the human spirit. And the fact that the, because see in dealing with the, and the, like the civil rights movement, uh, racism or, you know, like thinking about like the 14th Amendment and the Civil War, the problem in this country of democracy is the problem of the human and what we think of as the human being. Um, what it is in, uh, in, in that way. So I'm just, so like the left has to be clear on where they stand with black people. They have to be clear on where they stand with peace. And that's how you can see the rest of the world and so on like that. It has nothing to do with blaming or putting or throwing a person in a bag or in a box like Glenn Greenwald is right wing. Like that makes no sense. That's not an argument because you're not talking about what Glenn is actually speaking of. You're just talking about a dogma. And so when, I'm thinking about, like, I'm agreeing with you because the a person who is a left in my mind, it's like, it, it's like a somebody, either a woman or a worker or like whomever who has kids, who has, who is involved in their neighborhood, who's in the, you know, in the city, and uh, like they would be the person who's the most like. Um, disciplined on getting to work on time or doing their dues or whatever like that in that kind of in that kind of way um, the person who is left is the most educated the most person who is the most willing to um, be able to develop thought and culture not just like art itself but just like the life worlds of the people like and in my mind I'm thinking about that person in regards to how we have looked at the Korean people um, or the Chinese people who rather value um, a person who is more um, uh, well versed in their tasks and their philosophy and their responsibilities than war. <laughs> which is what this country is considering all children to more or less care about. And that's insane because it is a complete anti-human and diminishment of the human being. So I don't, I think that yes, that there can still arise a left, like there can still be yeah. that um, yeah. type of, but there's also the question that free school is, the, is dependent upon which is the ideological struggle and developing a people and continuing to yeah. help develop the people um in their consciousness um to their fullest capacity um and that's what i care about but 
We've had. Oh, I'm. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Did you want to go? I, I just wanted to ask Jerry if we had any comments. We do, but. Yeah, I feel like Alice. Alice, you yeah, want to just say something. Yeah. Comments aren't that urgent, but I'll read them after. I I think every time there's a conversation around affirmative action, uh, I always feel like it's a distraction from the actual problems of education and of society. And so the way that free school has framed today's discussion has been really helpful and also made me reflect on, yeah, like my path to where I am today in the free school, but also of all of, like many of us who have gone through elite universities, like in one shape or another. Um, and uh, like specifically reflecting on my experiences growing up in New York City, it's full of uh, various contradictions that I think immigrants and Chinese immigrants specifically have to navigate or maneuver. Um, because I think part of the impetus for uh, children of immigrants to go to not just universities, but at every stage of their upbringing to go to better schools is to actually avoid a terrible public school system. Um, and uh, that's something that I largely was able to avoid in New York City and didn't become like fully conscious of how terrible actually our education system is from a young age, not even talking about universities yet, until I came to Philadelphia, where there's even more discussion around how awful or um, like uh, primary, middle school schools are in actually educating young people and not just an ideological education, but a basic education in, you know, math, sciences, uh, history, all of that. Uh, because I know growing up, a huge part of my parents wanting me to uh, get into a good high school or even like a middle school is this fear that if you don't get into a number of select schools, you're going to essentially end up not receiving an education. And oftentimes actually those schools are associated with black and brown kids who um, yeah, don't end up getting the education that you get at in these select few schools. Um, but the funny thing that happens is that as you're navigating middle school and thinking about high school, um, and then you actually get into a high school, and this is specifically for Asians, you get into a high school that's selective so-and-so, you face another contradiction, which is that you end up one among many other Asians who come from the same background as you, meaning like whether it's a working class, meaning whether you're um, Chinese or Indian or whatever it is, and then you face the problem of differentiating yourself from that massive pool that's applying to college. Because now the question or contradiction is different. It's not about whether or not you get a good education. Um, and I think a lot of immigrant parents don't struggle to make that transition as well, where I think being immigrants, they don't understand the American um, undergrad or college, um, elite college like uh, um, system, where it's no longer just about receiving a good education, where you're actually properly taught 
um, but also like the whole dynamic of like ideological uh, ideological and political education as well. Um, and that helped me to understand actually why like many of us here who have gone to elite universities also ended up looking for a different kind of education, uh, which it essentially is the free school where what is the education that now you're not only just taught like basic sciences or basic like um, fields of knowledge, but also an education that helps to serve the people that you come from, um, like ordinary, like an education for ordinary people. And I think even in talking about these presidential debates or the left, or uh, that is exactly the question that we're trying to answer, which is, is there an education not of the elite, but for ordinary people to make sense of themselves and also to assume the responsibility of changing society? Um, because that's also another dimension that uh, Asians or immigrants don't really or haven't or either have managed to escape or uh, have chosen whiteness, essentially, which is to not be to not rock the boat or not rock the system. And then you end up participating in it. Um, but if you do assume that responsibility, then you have to face like what is actually happening in um amongst the lives of white people, black people, those that share a common sense of like ordinary people and um, like what their strivings are and what are they asking for, what they're saying. And I think that brings does bring that back to our conversation around the presidential elections because this is actually something that came from Don DeBar and he was saying how um, awesome it is that you have someone or have these individuals of RFK Jr. and Trump, where if you, it's through their political campaigns that actually you see this crack or opening that people have described where people themselves are being educated in that process. It's less so actually even of who is elected, like that is important. Um, but these years like of Trump, and this is, this is Don, he was like, yeah, how awesome is it where for several years, people have never really been talking about the issues on a mainstream level of peace. Um, but with these figures, you know, in these months and years leading up to the presidential election, you have people actually talk, having to face the problem or the question of peace. And in that process, ordinary people are also being brought along and are educated. And, um, and that, affirms what we've been saying where peace itself or this quick question of peace or war and peace is um, a question of democracy where people themselves are uh, engaged in that process and will have to transform and see one another one another as well uh, like what rfk jr is saying where you know it's a good thing that um, people on like the established categories are like these categories no longer fit because things are shifting um, and the people are transforming and changing. Um, so this was, yeah, this was really helpful in actually making sense of like, what is a distraction or not what it may seem? Because yeah, like people have been saying, affirmative action is seen like, oh, are you on the left of this or in the right of this? But is it actually the question that we're supposed to, or we should be, um, uh, aligning ourselves to um, uh, and is it actually a substance?
And then what is the true question? Yeah, well, I wanted to just second what Alice was saying, that the real uh, education process is kind of happening in the, the democratic debates that are coming. And in uh, not just peace, but with RFK for the first time, I'm seeing a candidate educate people about science and have a public debate about science. I think that I'm joking the stuff about the vaccines, but also uh, I, I am seeing, like I, I, in the in the town hall that RFK did, it was quite interesting because they, they had a, a South Asian doctor basically try to confront him about vaccines and his position on vaccines. And in some ways it's symbolic of what we were talking about of Asians trying to line up with the elite and in that uh, they use this brown face to defend uh, big pharma in that particular debate. And I thought RFK was quite clarifying and educating people about the corruption in big pharma and the corruption in the FDA and so on. And, but when I see the response from the left, like I was listening to this very popular left-wing podcast called Chapo Trap House. And they, these people were extremely, uh, I listen once in a while to see what they say because it's so popular. Uh, and these people had such a demeaning view towards not just RFK, but the masses. They were like, oh, how dare, this is, this is such crank behavior. How dare he bring up science to people that are so uneducated about science. And uh, for me, it just illustrated the elitism of the left that they feel, well, first of all, they, them, they think everybody is as dumbed down as they are. I mean, I think ordinary people are able to understand. They may not know all the uh, equations and chemical formulas or whatever of vaccines, but they're able to understand when you have corruption in the FDA, when you have uh, corruption in the public health system, and they're able to see how uh, the government is allowing people to profit off of their lives in multiple ways, and whether it's impoverishing them, making them sick, denying them uh, education, as we've been talking about. So I just wanted to mention that. And also, I don't think we said this yet, but I also heard on a podcast this week, Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor, who's a very close advisor to Trump. And, you know, some are saying that if Trump is elected, he would be Trump's national security advisor. Um, he said that he believes, his personal opinion that he said publicly that uh, Trump and RFK should join hands and run on a third party ticket, uh, which is significant coming from someone so close to Trump. And basically, he was saying that they need a populist anti-war uh, movement against the war in Ukraine and basically anti-deep state. And again, that's very significant. And it was interesting because in the same podcast, he talked about how he's from North Philly. And he's like, I've, North Philly hasn't seen a Democratic election in my entire lifetime because of how corrupt things are there. But it made, just made me, it was striking for me to see this white guy who's, I guess, originally from North Philly, but been in the army advocating a peace uh, candidacy. And, you know, it just made me think of, oh, the, the uh, we've been discussing how uh, the struggle now is going to be look so different from the struggle of the Russian Revolution or even the German Revolution that we we're alluding to. It's going to be this democratic remaking of the people. It's going to take all kinds of forms. And uh, that's where this break from this uh, stagnant uh, left is uh, going to take place. And so it's uh, just very interesting to see it playing out and how people are reacting to it. This is slightly tangential, but I think it's worth mentioning. Speaking of corruption in Chicago, um, right now NASCAR has right. come to Chicago. So there's been massive road closures for weeks. You can't go anywhere. 
And it's just crazy because there was no democratic process at all. Lori Lightfoot just signed a contract for three years, apparently, yeah. allowing NASCAR to come and take over Chicago in the middle of the summer, which is like the only time you, the city really comes alive yeah, because otherwise yeah, the yeah, weather is yeah. so difficult. Um, and just it's really crazy to see because see overnight they've built bleachers and bleachers surrounding the roads that only t people with tickets can get in. And it's just so you can build these bleachers overnight. You can't do anything about housing. You can't do anything about healthcare. You can't do anything about education. You can open up elementary schools for these refugees, but you can't open them up for the black children in these neighborhoods. So, I mean, and these are the biggest champions and products of affirmative action. You know, might I add these leaders and just the, the, these basic questions of corruption are so unanswered by this whole elite discourse. Um, so it's a bit, it's a bit of a tangential thing. No, no, no. I, I just want to say, uh, Johan, uh, Douglas McGregor is not from the North Philly that I'm from. He said he's from the Alney part. He's from Alney or you know going towards the northeast i've heard him say but he's not from like what we call north philly okay that's what i figured i figured he yeah. must be from the white part of north philly but i appreciate you keeping it real it's not even north philly it's oh, okay. like colony that's oh, okay. where he's from okay yeah that's yeah i just put it yeah um i didn't want to actually the way that you guys were talking about specifically what RFK Jr. is doing and what he's able to harness with this election campaign. Interestingly, it kind of reminded me of um, <clears throat> like when I was having to do, I guess, research into Nehru and how he understood the purpose of his elections um, after India achieved independence in which I feel like the question of who wins the election is less important than can you use the election as an opportunity to educate the people? And I feel like that's, I feel like that has been something that is, yeah, like either misunderstood or misrepresented where, yeah, like the question of, I feel like people who are critics, I guess, of either Trump or RFK Jr. or whatever, will be like, when you say, oh yeah, like they're, when like, if, if we say, for instance, that Trump is presenting himself as a peace candidate or RFK Jr. is presenting himself as a peace candidate, the response from people on the left will be like, actually they're lying. They don't really care about peace or whatever. But the real, like the real question which gets obscured is, is this election gonna be an opportunity for ordinary people to come together and actually develop a greater understanding of this question of war and peace to actually come together and expand their own democratic capacity to actually govern or to deliberate and decide on oh actually this is what the united states is what the united states should be like what our position should be on this great question of war and peace and that also relates to what Johan was saying in terms of um yeah, like vaccines, the scientific establishment, all of these questions which have basically been either covered up or kind of left to the side has been like, oh, these are not questions for the people to decide. It's just these are questions for a small handful of people to decide. And we're just going to present all of these other things which are either not important or 
uh, being being misrepresented as being like these are the litmus tests for democratic what is what is democratic or not and i think that that is what is happening with the affirmative action thing too where yeah like affirmative action is being pushed to the forefront of discourse as this is the litmus test of whether or not america is democratic or not um you know the affirmative action thing mm -hmm. and yeah no no i'm sorry go, go ahead no no that, that was um i guess the main point i wanted to make you know and the thing you know um I don't think we're advocates of the great man or great woman theory of history. I think we adhere to the idea that people make history. And, and we feel, I mean, the free school, and this is where, uh, I mean, just openly, we're not with so many of these thinkers who feel that the American people are not capable of very much, including Chris Hedges. I mean, his uh, last interview, uh, I, f uh, I forget the young woman, a black woman that was interviewing him, he made it perfectly clear. He doesn't expect very much of, of the American people. He's in this not to create change uh, as much as he is in it uh, because morally he can do nothing else. Uh, <laughs> You know, to which I said, will you stop the dramatics? And I mean, if you're not in it for change, if you don't believe in the people, uh, get out of the way. The people will find a way. But this great political rebellion, this is a political rebellion. And the people, and this is what I think a lot of people get wrong. It's not so much your policies and the minutia of how you articulate your policy. Uh, for example, uh, Medicare for all. This election in its essence is about the political, about the ruling class, the ruling elite, and can they continue to rule? People say, oh no, it's not, American people don't understand. Yes, they do. Yeah. This is an election about the rule of the ruling elite. Now that's the way I'm putting it. That's not, it might not be articulated that way in a popular way, but at its essence, it's that. When RFK Jr. attacks Big Pharma, he is attacking the ruling class. When he attacks the military industrial complex, he is attacking the ruling class. When Trump attack. I mean, every. I don't care how you turn it. They're attacking the ruling class, and what they're saying: the ruling elite rules by lying to the people. The other thing is, and here's Cornell. He's in that mix. And when you see the three of them together, you get a more holistic understanding of the people themselves, because these individuals can only act as political agents to the extent that they reflect the people. They don't have a lot of money, small donations. RFK, I don't think he has anything. Cornell, very little, anything at all. But the other thing, I don't ever know of a time when there were three 
peace candidates running for president at the same time. Uh, and they're taking on, well, Cornell running on the Green Party, RFK Jr. in the Democratic Party to take back the Democratic Party for the working people. And then Trump, who said in 2016, if he's elected twice, he will turn the Republican Party into a working class party. Look, I'm not looking for any of them to articulate or quote phrases from the Communist Manifesto. Not at all. I mean, but what we're looking at is something quite hopeful. A, re a political rebellion among the people. What else are you going to call it? You don't see that? Oh, the American people uh, are nothing, are, are trash, et cetera, et cetera. It's a political rebellion. And in such a rebellion, and here I agree with Alice, the elite discussions of anything for the most part are distractions. I don't care whether it's affirmative action, trans rights, LGBTQ, black lives, any, any uh, discourse that is coming from and dominated by the elites are distractions. The real question is I agree with everybody. You can't for, be for democracy if you're not for peace. You can't be for peace if you're not for democracy. And this is what we see developing. And um, I'll shut up there. I don't know if we have any comments. I'd be very interested. Great. Um, okay, comments. Um, Todd, Jake, Grady, Philip Logan, um, Nabila, Yvonne, Christopher Romero say good morning. Um, there are mostly just, I think, factual addition. So Bakke, Yvonne says Bakke was rejected from enrolling in the med school at UC Davis. Um, and that great Grady says the constitution's writing and ratification are in the 1700s. And Nabila says Biden's also responsible for making the school loans non-dischargeable through bankruptcy. Um, and then so it's hard, kind of hard to tell, but um, Grady kind of has a long comment saying, okay, like what does the constitution actually mean? So I think this is a more philosophical comment about like the law and the United States and what it means for the people. And so two definitions of the constitution, one, the legal document of jurisprudence, and then two, the laws and rules of human thinking, behavior and misbehavior. Um, Gandhi famously reminds us to be the change we wish to see in the world. In other words, we must each deliver our decision, affirmatively amending the constitution of human misbehavior. Um, so the constitution of human misbehavior needs to be amended. And so jurisprudence is a necessary but woefully insufficient means to that end. Um, he says, woe be unto the projects of social justice that are solely dependent upon and misled by the quote, sufficiencies of a Supreme Court. Um, woe be unto those who forsake the Supreme Court of their own conscience and abscond from affirmatively implementing its rulings. 
he says, we all must introduce affirmative action amendments to the constitution of human misbehavior and argue them before the Supreme Courts of our individual conscience, as well as the high courts of public opinion. And so I think that actually kind of, I guess, fits in well with like our discussion of democracy and like basically like relegating your opinion or your thoughts to like this mainstream discourse or also like whatever rulings are made by the Supreme Court. And then beyond that, there are just, I guess, a few YouTube. Oh, and then Grady adds, P.S. and by the way, diversity, equity and inclusion are constituted misbehaviors to millions of people who they also have to, I think, reflect on and amend. And then there is a YouTube comment by Calibri One that just says Glenn Greenwald has become a right winger. I feel like we addressed that with our long discussion about what really is the left and the right. And then Philip said a while ago, fascism is also how bourgeois society tries to reconstitute itself as a cultural form, as opposed to being a socio-ideological expression of capitalist production. And then Blair Pilgrim just said, hey, everybody. <laughs> and then Todd wanted to know what um, the piece of art was that Magno was talking about, which was the Fasanella American Heritage painting, which she linked. And that's actually all of the comments pretty much. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we addressed it well throughout our whole long conversation. Yeah, I, I wanted to say one thing. I'm not sure if this is exactly what Grady was saying, but I feel like one of the things that I feel very strongly is that if there is a negative reaction basically to diversity, equity and inclusion and like wokeness in general, I think that it is a mistake to identify that as quote unquote white backlash, you know, in the way that white, the white backlash was formulated, I think back in like the seventies and eighties as a backlash against the civil rights movement, because one, it misappropriates or misidentifies like DEI initiatives in like Penn or DEI initiatives at like BlackRock or Goldman or was it Goldman Sachs or whatever as things that are actually uh, progressive and um, things that also have the best interests of whether it's like black people, Latino people, people of color by any means um, or initiatives which are democratic by any means. And so I think that's part of, I think that's part of also the discussion about like what is left, what is right and how are these uh, categories changing because how are the people changing? And I think that, yeah, like, part of the reason why people identify like Trump as a fascist is because he represents the um, reaction against basically woke politics. And I think it's a mistake to view those as just like a white backlash against black people and more as a backlash against the elites and the elite strategy to legitimate itself through diversity. And I think that that has to be, I guess, clarified or distinguished because um, I don't think that this is exactly everything that happens now is not an exact replica or duplication of what happened during the civil rights period. And history has moved forward. American society has changed. And we have to be able to understand the way that American society has changed and not just say that, oh, everything is a repeat of things that happened in the past, because I don't think that that is exactly accurate. Um, but yeah. Well, also, one thing I think, I think we've spoken about this in the past, but when the civil when the supreme court decisions in favor of civil rights were passed that was a conservative court 
you know, I mean, the difference was there was a movement, you know, I mean, there was true democracy, a true expression of democracy. And yeah, I think that's the other really, um, I think that's, we, we had mentioned this earlier, but part of this is a Democrat, so we can put in a liberal Supreme Court justice as if that is the democratic struggle, um, where it really is not, um, yeah, just to add to Grady's point. Yeah, the I, you can tell it's not uh, for the people because it's so embraced by the Pentagon. That's the interesting <laughs> thing. A lot of the Trump voters are angry that the because a lot of them were in the military and so are angry that there's DEI and critical race theory in the military. And it's thrown, that is part of what's thrown the military into this crisis. But it is interesting that the affirmative action case exempted military academies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the they wrote Roberts wrote in his ruling that this does not apply to military academies who have a different interest than other universities. Can I just say something? Uh, because this is still, if if not a debate, there are certain assumptions about the civil uh, rights movement. One of which, uh, well, not just an assumption, a, a thesis that. Uh, civil rights was a Cold War imperative. In other words, the ruling class would um, uh, uh, move to a regime of civil rights and legal equality because of the existence of the uh, Soviet Union and the African and Asian independence movements. Um, I think that's a very, and, and therefore, uh, Martin Luther King and, and the movements were not really necessary. They were good to have, but not necessary. And part of that argument is based upon the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, there was not a, quote, civil rights movement a la after um, or from the Montgomery bus boycott up to 1965. There, 54 was before that. Um, however, uh, the regime of segregation uh, that was uh, constitutionally rationalized through the Plessy v. Ferguson decision of 1896 had increasingly become intolerable to the masses of black people and they were fighting against it. Uh, it was not just a Cold War imperative. It was an imperative of tens and hundreds of thousands of black troops returning from the war against fascism and in Europe and saying, we will not stand for this any longer. That it was not quote, a Cold War imperative as much as it was a system legitimating imperative. How does a ruling class rule? And so it had to adapt and adjust. Now, Thurgood Marshall, the first black on the US Supreme Court, who is, a, who is credited with having argued in many ways designed the Brown argument, but there were many, many others, uh, by the way, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, the dean of the law school at Howard University, and many others had, had been arguing the 14th Amendment and segregation 
for decades. But then after the Brown decision, he took a position against King and those in uh, mounting a mass movement. Uh, remember, Rosa Parks was challenging segregation on buses. The Brown decision outlawed segregation in schools. What Marshall argued is that we don't need a mass movement as much as we need for more lawyers to argue state by state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on behalf of civil rights and against segregation. Martin Luther King argued against, Thur and, and the, the Montgomery movement argued against Thurgood Marshall that, first of all, there were no guarantees that we could be successful only fighting through the courts. Secondly, fighting through the courts would take decades upon decades upon decades. And, and everyone that has made the point, and King is a masterful exemplar of this as well as many others, that movements politically educate the people, that movements create the groundwork for democracy. Movements are themselves democratic. And this, this is the, this beautiful kernel of thinking that comes out of the civil rights movement. Uh, King would put it this way, we have a right to protest for right. You could add, you could put it this way, we have a democratic right, a democratic imperative to protest for right. And King always framed the democratic question, the democratic struggle as a moral imperative. I wanted to make that point. And it's, and just, I, I, I'll end here. You know, just this thing that we have to wait for the right time, conditions, a political party, a vanguard party and all of this like led to the Russian Revolution is a, a necessity, an imperative for our time. Well, to me, that seems at best naive. Do you not remember the civil rights movement? The civil rights movement was a movement of millions of people. It tapped in to the feelings of millions of people. Let's not get it twisted. That's why King, when King gets the Nobel Peace Prize, it and King said it himself. You know, this is given to me on behalf of the black people. And then he says, and this is so beautiful, but then I must return to the valley, meaning the masses, cause the valley calls, the masses call. And so left is not defined by whether or not you are a Marxist or a Marxist-Leninist, you know, because even Marx said the point is not to interpret the world, but to change it. Mm -hmm. 
So what Marxism has become for all too many people, I think for damn near everybody that claims this, is a way to interpret the world. They do not have a strategy for change. Part of the reason they don't have a strategy for change because they fail to understand, diminish and trivialize Martin Luther King and that great third American revolution. And they're trying to find an alternative. Let me just say my last point. The left, for the most part, has been thrown off since the 1970s. The 1970s is a pivotal, pivotal decade because King had been assassinated. The future of the civil rights movement and the black struggle was uncertain. And then you got small groups of whites and blacks in the name of revolution, carrying out anti-people's reckless behavior, i.e. the Black Liberation Army, i.e. the Weather Underground, i.e. the first iteration of the Workers' World's Party, uh, which had this name of Youth Against War and Fascism. The way they behaved, and you see it all, you know, you just see it all over again in the Black Lives Matter, a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests. These actions are not geared to educate, elevate, or help organize or get involved the masses of people. How do you explain a Black Lives Matter march in Philadelphia and Black people are standing on their porches saying, what are they marching for? You know, you know what I'm saying? I think in the name of the democratic struggle, we return to the vision, tactics, and strategies of the third American revolution. And I think the more we refer to it as a third American revolution to fulfill the unfulfilled objectives of the second American revolution, King said it all the time. He's talking about the post-Civil War amendments, the 14th Amendment in the first place. He said, put into practice what you wrote on paper. Right. By the way, that's the way black folk will talk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we came to the bank mm -hmm. of democracy to cash a check and were told there were insufficient funds democracy they understood it was they were not naive this idea that we have some marxist leninist who are more sophisticated than martin luther king jr and his colleagues is one of the great mythologies supporting white supremacy that we ever heard of the other thing and i and just because you know, in the fall, we're going to do Henry Winston, 50th anniversary of Strategy for a Black Agenda. Remember in the essay Henry Winston wrote from the anti-slavery to the anti-monopoly coalition, mm -hmm. he could have used the word anti-imperialist too, that's what he was talking about. 
And what did he say? The ideological pillars of the democratic struggle from slavery to anti-monopoly, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Martin Luther King. Yep, yep. Most Marxist Leninists, and I this when I do this, this means quote unquote, you know. Because <laughs> I get tired of quota, because I just do this. They don't know Douglas, they don't know Du Bois, and they don't know Martin Luther King Jr. What nation and what revolution and what democracy are you talking about? Mm-hmm. In the face of their ignorance of their own history, and especially of Black people. They know nothing about Black people and could care less. And so in a a desperate move, and you look at their activities, I don't care whether it's the, the marches here in Philly this past weekend or still going on this weekend, against moms for liberty and the fight for the trans rights and trans lives matter and all of that. This is desperation and ignorance. If trans lives matter, you develop a mass movement for democracy, the spearhead of which is a struggle for black freedom and the black proletariat. If you about, if you wanna save trans lives, you don't, you don't go into this uh, nickel and dime dramatics where you seem to be outraged and come on, man, let's keep it real. The other thing is the great task of the democratic struggle at this time is to deliver, if not a completely uh, destructive blow to the ruling class and its control of the state institutions to weaken their capacity to wage war and to attack and undermine the people's rights. And by people's rights, we're talking about the right to strike, talking about the right to organize, we're talking about the right to an education. That's when we talk about the people. And uh, let me just shut my mouth here. Everything these three are saying in one way or another are addressing those who control state power. And they're saying in one way or another that those who control the state rule us illegitimately. This is, this is huge. You miss that? Don't call yourself left. Call yourself a weak, uh, petty bourgeois liberal trying to be relevant. The faster the I really, uh, I really like uh, how you uh, elevated that uh, articulation of the uh, movement of history has to be the education of the people. Uh, when I when I think about uh, uh, you know examples of history, you know the uh, 
Martin Luther King Jr. being being the greatest. Uh, and uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Nehru, and uh, I'm, I'm looking now at uh, uh, AMLO in, in Mexico. Uh, so what, what, what are you going to get? And, and all these other people that say, what are they, we, we want to see state power. You know, we want to change the system. Like, what does that each even mean? Like, are you going to do things in the name of the people? You're going to supposedly represent them when the democracy that you want to build is going to be their expression. The the any any changes have to include the education of, of the people, and uh, uh, really the uh, I, I think the one of the strongest forces that I feel is still standing in America that uh, uh, exemplifies this is the the Nation of Islam, and uh, in, in that they decide you know we don't want to you know what what are we going to get from trying to uh uh fight for this candidate or uh align ourselves with the powers that be when we we don't even have it together ourselves how we can't relate to to the world right the western world the united states government uh if, if we're not capable ourselves uh and so you know they, they have their own schools for example muhammad university uh, all the way up from youth and uh, you know they recognize, okay, you know the, there are some things that you know the the white world has. You know we'll we'll, we'll go to we'll get a you know, like uh, Dr. Wesley Muhammad. I'll, I'll, you'll get a PhD, but you know what to make of that. You know how to relate to it. You know, you know how to take that education to serve your people. Uh, and uh, you know they, they they try to feed themselves. They have they have their own farms. Uh, and so I, uh, I I would hope to really fall fall on that example of uh, raising the people and making them capable before trying to uh, focus on uh, democratic uh, elections, so to, so to speak, uh, uh, if I were a, a left person, quote unquote. Uh, and uh, really, what I, I, I have some hopes and expectations for the new presidencies of, let's say, Trump or RFK Jr., uh, at least fo following the, the uh, example that I uh, uh, see uh, with AMLO in Mexico and that you have to do things differently because the stakes are are higher and the ruling class is doubling down. Uh, for for example, he, uh, every, you know, he has Las Mañaneras every day in the morning. He talks about what the country is doing uh, and allows even journalists to question what's going on so that the people can learn how their government functions and they are you're held accountable. And you have your own media networks uh, uh, because the ruling class is going to find ways to take what you're saying out of context and uh, uh, smear you. And uh, I'll even have a quien is quien, who is who, because they, they face so many attacks that they feel they have to need to address them because the, the powers of the media are so powerful. Uh, so you know, I, I really hope that the if Trump, for example, gets in office, he is able to shift uh, the minds of the people more so focusing on education. Because after, after, you know, he, 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 he has one more term left, possibly four more years. What's going to happen after Trump is gone? Uh, the idea with AMLO is that the people rule. I, they have one year, six year presidency. I'm going to do my presidency and then I turn it over to uh, maybe possibly another leader, but the people themselves. Uh, and yeah, I hope I hope that they're uh, able to reach that level uh, that uh, I've seen in the, in the modern rendition that uh, is part of King's vision. That's part of uh, uh, Farrakhan's vision. Yeah, I, I, a lot of possibilities, man. The future is looking bright. Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest insights from Henry Winston, and then maybe from that same essay that you were mentioning, Doc, was 
there's a part where he says he's basically like talking i guess this was in the 70s and looking out at like this generation of young radicals like stokely carmichael and other people and saying that what the younger radicals have misunderstood about the civil rights movement is that like the measure of what is revolutionary is not like it's not what like this younger generation thought it's not like the extent to which you can act and be bold and to basically like show how willing you are to go like basically to the likes of violence like that's not the measure of what is a revolutionary movement the measure of what is a revolutionary movement is how far does the people's consciousness advance through the movement and that yeah i don't know when henry winston like wrote that that was it was such a light bulb moment for me because yeah i feel like and i guess that was before even i guess the free school had formulated this like third american revolution thing but i don't know yeah it helped to, i think for me also lay the groundwork for yeah like why we talk about the civil rights movement as a third american revolution and and yeah i agree with what also what eddie was saying too where what gets missed by and i think this is also like a lesson that has been um well also actually sorry another way of putting this is that um doc when you mentioned like that marx quote about the point of being a marxist is not just to interpret the world but to change it you could argue, argue that they've also misinterpreted the world to begin with they misunderstand the world they misunderstand history they misunderstand the people they misunderstand their own role in relation to the people and as a result of that also the actions that they do the way that they try to change the world is also misguided and um and you know yeah so i feel like you need i guess both of those things too um but yeah do you want to read no but yeah, because there is a, I mean, there is a comment on YouTube about, I think, asking Doc about like revolutionary violence and stuff. And I feel like to a large extent, you've already talked about it. I don't know if you want to talk about it more, but basically asking like, are you against revolutionary violence? Yeah, well, but, but that's what Henry Winston is addressing. Yeah. yeah. That uh, a generation arose that in the name of revolution, um, said that the only way that revolution is brought about is through violence, through what we call the civil war path. That is by force of arms. What Martin Luther King has said, said is that nonviolence is a democratic means to advance democracy. This is very important. What is what is the political task? And we could, we, you know, I guess when we have more time, it is democracy. What is democracy? It is a form of state rule. Okay, how do you change the state? You know, cause you know, again, it's the constitution, the law, race, state, you know, how do you change the state? And this is what has to be addressed. We, I would say, look, 
for those who would propose to the masses that the sole method of transforming society and changing the state is through violent means. I don't think that they will get much of a hearing from most people, including those who advocate for the right to bear arms. Most people, and a lot of these right to bear arms people are saying we need arms to defend ourselves against the overreach of the state. Well, for them, that's an individualist solution. And that it's a naive solution. They don't understand that to defend democracy and to defend the individual is organization and ideological clarity. I mean, that that's the way I, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times, I, if I, I don't, I don't talk a little bit too much today, but back in the days, right? People want to back in the days, kind of thing. Okay, I go back in the days, um, and one of the things that would be the um, uh, the question asked of like a Henry Winston or the Communist Party. Were you not for the violent overthrow of the government? You know, which is an ass backward way of putting the question. You know, uh, that Marx said in 1855, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Lenin said yada, 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 yada. Uh, but, what happens when billions of people are on a level of consciousness never before seen in history? King was right. How do I advocate for nonviolence at home and do not oppose violence abroad? You could put it the opposite way. And this is, this is one of the contradictions. I don't know if it's a contradiction, but it's a problem of Trotskyism. Permanent revolution. What do you mean by permanent revolution? Is it the same as permanent war? Mm. Are you an advocate of, quote, revolution by any means necessary? King, see, this is, this, King is very, very important. But everything is not what Marx or Lenin said. Let me tell you something. King is important. A struggle for democracy based upon the education and uniting of the people. No matter how difficult, no matter how arduous, no matter how complicated, that's what a revolutionary does. And I agree with Eddie. The Nation of Islam is an exemplar of raising the capacity to struggle of people who had been told that they were worthless. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. And we have all of these examples 
Uh, that's the way I would answer that question. Yeah, um, there's a follow-up question from that same person who asks if you'd be open to a dialogue with someone named Daruba bin Muhad, who I guess was part of the Panthers and Black Liberation Army, but... Definitely. I, I ne we never met personally, but I mean, I know of him, he might know of me. There'd be no problem with that. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it, it might be a fruitful discussion. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and then, yeah, we just have one last comment from Philip Logan saying, the right-wingers tend to preoccupy themselves with the whole, quote, do you want to overthrow the government, uh, unquote, because they more often than not are projecting the imperatives of their own politics. But I think that's, that's the main... I don't quite understand. Phil, I don't quite understand what you're saying. You got to be a little more clear in your formulations. Um, and I, I go back to Serafina, what is the left and what is the right? Or what, what Nuri said, we have to, we have to critically uh, understand what are the categories that we're using. Yeah. A lot of times our categories, and I hear I'm, I'm just uh, repeating Nuri, are the result of a, of a static, a historical mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. I would like to uh, read a quote from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in a message to the black man in America. Uh, I saw this on Facebook the other day. Uh, Minister Abel posted it. He said, I am not trying to get you to fight. That is not even necessary. Our unity will win the battle. Not one of us will have to raise a sword. Not one gun would we need to fire. The great cannon that will be fired is our unity. Our unity is the best. Uh, you know, I, I really think that this uh, 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 I, I exemplifies the, the, the belief in the power of the people to uh, decide their destiny uh, and uh, the rightful place of unity, uh, uh, and then the natural place of unity that uh, they uh, live by and seek to build. Uh, and uh, further, you know, the further, uh, uh, you know, for example, people might put the NOI against King or the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, especially, you know, you have that nice picture of him. Malcolm was cool. You know, he's, he has like a gun and he's like picking out a window because, you know, it was dangerous. They were come for his life. They're not against not defending yourself. But, uh, you know, the, one of the most militant organizations that is uh, going strong to this day, uh, it, it fights for peace. Uh, you know, I, we, we, man, we have a lot of uh, uh, good stuff on our hands, man. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, the, the crux of nonviolence is non-cooperation with evil. And if all people decide not to cooperate, the system is over. Um, yeah, and how else do you defeat something as with mm -hmm. its tentacles in as many places as that can infiltrate organizations also? You have to have this transformation of the human being to, towards non-cooperation with evil. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like the nation never ceases to uh, amaze me with these formulations. Yeah, you know, uh, recently I was also thinking about the how real uh, struggle among the people to unite the people, as Eddie was saying, 
plays out versus uh, this kind of left sloganeering. And so, you know, one example for me, uh, or two recent examples for me, uh, have been uh, one I read in the uh, final call. There was a very interesting article, um, and it was about an incident that happened, I think, in South Carolina, I believe, where an Asian, I believe, a Chinese or Korean store owner had shot a young black child and they, they had some altercation or something at shot. And it clearly looks like a case of, uh, you know, that, that it, of uh, the child being an innocent victim. And there's like a great outcry about racism and so on in South Carolina. And the NOI's response, uh, I was very impressed by because they said that, uh, I mean, yes, this is a case of racism. We must have justice for this child. But they said that, the, the um, conflict and tension and separation of Asians and Blacks, I guess relevant to today's discussion, in this country is rooted in ignorance, in the ignorance of white supremacy. And they had a lot of quotes, again, by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad saying that uh, Asians and Blacks are members of the original family. And when there is knowledge will bring that understanding and will bring that kind of uh, love and unity that can unite the original family against white supremacy and evil, which is the common enemy of both and of all people. And so I was very impressed by that uh, very mature uh, discussion, but also the fact that they're appealing to people's moral principles, I felt. And I mean, this is, this is the uh, difficult thing is that we are faced with this question of violence within the society and the, ways in a very ugly ways violence plays out, whether it's this example or whether in the inner cities when they talk about young black men uh, basically victimizing other young black men. And how are you going to deal with this? You're not going to, um, uh, too often what I see from the left is to try to take advantage of these situations and organize so-called protests and try to stoke tensions even, which is also what the uh, elites would like us to do. But, and then another related example uh, is uh, which we talked about last week was RFK in his speech in New Hampshire about peace, where he cited Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and said that the violence abroad is tied with violence at home. And if we want peace at home, we have to fight for peace abroad. They're so linked. And so this problem, again, this problem of violence, which is uh, plaguing the society, um, I felt that these two approaches are something which would appeal to the masses of people across all of these lines and would be able to bring them together. But it's rooted again in appealing to people's like basic decency and uh, morality rather than sloganeering or these, you know, kind of uh, uh, calls for whatever kind of violence or so on. So anyway, I was just thinking, I was just very struck by the, how this, this approach is so different from uh, this, you know, so-called left approach. I also always, I just, that phrase that Harry Belafonte said in the Robeson documentary was so good. Du Bois, Robeson, they taught us to come from a place of cunning rather than a place of reaction. And just that thing of cunning is so important. I mean, this is not about your ego. This is about what it will take to actually transform society. Um, and that's why, yeah. I just wanted to say one last thing because I've been processing all of all of this is very clarifying. You know, this this thing about violent overthrow, permanent revolution, you know, how the civil rights movement was 
unnecessary in some ways because it was the cold war imperative to give people these concessions or whatever i mean this was the same thing they said about the indian freedom struggle that that you know that the world war 2 imperative was to get grant freedom to all these uh, south you know the the to asian countries which are under the colonial regime and more and more i'm beginning to realize that the left as a category is more harmful than it does good because it obscures historical truth and you know it obscures the movement the historical movement toward peace that has occurred like you know in different parts of the world but were also connected and you know i was also list- i i read the transcript of biden's speech in chicago last week um and first of all i mean one could go over it, it was very dry i mean this it's very uninspiring but the significant thing that's missing from it is any question of war and peace like he doesn't go into that question at all he's talking about bidenomics or whatever which really he's trying to sell like a new thing but you know it's 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 a version of what trump ran on on in 2016 bring jobs back to american whatever but now suddenly it's his own original thing whatever but even if you ignore those blatant contradictions he does not talk about war and peace at all he mentions ukraine and russia once but basically in the in the context of how russia's invasion of ukraine has taught america that you have to be energy like you know self sufficient in the energy um sector and so on and this is what i'm trying to say that you know if you know if the left consensus is that one should vote for biden or the democratic party because it's left leaning i mean it it makes no sense because you know you're you're not for peace and you're not for the people and even this affirmative action thing i know i'm like throwing in a lot of things together but the affirmative action the reaction against this decision last week to connect it to the roe versus wade uh decision that came out because people are doing that they're saying oh these two things these recent rulings are grouped together and they are the anti left positions to take but they are not similar at all i mean in no way i mean the the fact that there can be a consensus that these very different and contradictory things can be grouped together in the same bag as what is democratic or the democratic thing to think or the leftist thing to think i mean it just sort of is more evidence that the left as a category is more of a distraction than anything else in our times as opposed to the purpose it served in the past you know and i think it's significant that the three others rfk cornell west and trump since they're running on a platform of peace it's even more significant that biden doesn't mention peace at all yeah you know um even though of course they know that that's the platform that they're running on and they still cannot possibly make any comment about it and that's significant because uh if you if you really have to because it brings into question the 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 concept of fascism that is currently doing the rounds because if you were to really think about it the democratic party is a warlike party it's the most warlike party and fascism has always been linked to war and if people make that connection they will realize that the democratic party is the fascist party it's the and and cornell west 
has got it the other way around. That Biden is the new fascist. It's not Trump. I, I just wanted to say this. You know, if we just talk, what we have are two parties that are not all that popular with the American people. And within those two parties, movements. So Trump is not the Republican Party, although he's running for the Republican nomination. It is a movement that goes beyond the Republican Party and most establishment Republicans are going to fight him to the death. Uh, they just don't know what to do with him. RFK is a movement within the Democratic Party to oust the current leadership and to try, and he says it openly, try to win back the working class that has left the Democratic Party and to make it once again the party of Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy type of thing. Cornell West is running as an independent, uh, but pretty much for the same things. Now, Cornell said he will go to go among the Trump voters. Well, he's already set up a problem for himself by calling Trump a neo-fascist thug. So the Trump voters will say, if he's a neo-fascist thug, Cornell, what you think I am, you know? So he's gonna have to, I mean, I think it's an important thing. It's a, it's a Martin Luther King impulse on his part, but you got to do it not superficially, but uh, genuinely. And you can't go among those people, let us say, in West Virginia or in um, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or uh, Butler, Pennsylvania, uh, talking like that. That's the way you can talk to the to uh, university students, and that's the way you know using that language you can get a audience with the mass media, the mainstream media, but. Once you get to the level of ordinary people, you're going to have to show them some respect. And that's what Robert Kennedy recognizes. If I want to unite the people, I must respect the people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And Cornell, if you wish to unite the people, you must respect the people. And this is a key thing. Yeah, I think, um, I know we're getting a little bit past, well past two, but yeah, I think part of the, what you just said in terms of respecting the people, part of the reason why the left as we, it is currently configured is so comfortable with throwing around this fascism uh, label onto basically anyone who supports Trump is because (laughs) The left is so used to basically tailing the ruling class that they're also able to, uh, I guess, in some ways, uh, inhabit the same disdain that the ruling class holds for the American people. Um, And that's why it's so easy for them to throw this fascism label against basically anyone. And yeah, I think it shows much more about what the left thinks is the capacity of the American people more than anything, because if you basically them using this fascism label is basically them saying that 
the American people are stupid, that they're ignorant, that they will be, that they're being misled towards, yeah, whatever, like the primrose path to fascism and not that the Trump movement represents actually something which is much different from that and is in its own, it is its own distinct development within the context of American history and can't be equated with basically like, oh, people have grievances, they're going to be misled to fascism and that's the only thing you need to know about it. Um, but, but yeah, I guess unless other people have things to add, I guess we could end here. Um, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about next week and in the coming weeks, but, but yeah, thank you to everyone who joined in the discussion today, both in preschool and online. And, um, yeah, we'll see you next week.